Well, hello, I'm Scott, and welcome to their Fuzz on Film podcast. I'll be joined by Craig and Drew later on, but for varied reasons, both personal and geopolitical, we're not really in the mind space to bring you the fresh podcast meat you've come to expect from us this month, so our apologies for that. Uh, but we do, then, what we always do in times of trouble, and turn to our spirit animal, Jean-Claude Van Damme, for inspiration. Here is, I think, his every appearance in our podcast, including a, a very special look at JCVD, taken from this podcast's previous incarnation from all the way back in 2000. Nine. Uh, so apologies for the somewhat inconsistent audio quality on that one in particular. We were young. Um, of course, there will be some people who don't want to listen to over three hours of chat about Brussels' finest sprout, and you lot can take the day off, and we hope to have something fresh with you soon. Uh, for the rest, settle in and let JCVD wash over you, starting with, appropriately enough, JCVD. Perhaps the most interesting curio um, and a surprisingly... <laughs> Surprisingly rewarding effort um, for anyone who manages to catch up with it. It's out on DVD already. It's, J- <laughs> it's JCVD, starring JCVD himself, Jean-Claude Van Damme, playing himself yes. as himself, being himself, being down and out, making crap films, and somehow getting caught up in a bank robbery. Well, he's playing kind of himself in the same way that Eminem's playing kind of himself in 8 Mile. As, as, actually, himself, as, but but he might as well be. You know? He might as well be himself. Yeah, it seems. I couldn't help but feel watching this that more than anything, it seems as if it's, it's John Claude Van Damme searching for some sort of catharsis. It does seem to be him sort of laying down his life yeah. in front of the camera, including court battles over custody of his children and whatnot, and sort of saying, "Oh, this is me." Isn't my lot actually a bit shit for all the sort of you know for all the attention and fame that I have and. I'm not entirely sure what the purpose of it was, but by God, it was entertaining. I can't think of a more imaginative or use of a, what is nominally a, a sort of heist slash action film that I've ever seen in my life. This is just, it's just so inventive. Uh, I, I, I can't quite work out how this managed to actually work in any way, shape or form. It should have no. fallen apart, it, it seems, within the first two minutes. It's, it's not but even it's audacious, not, it's just it's just stupid on paper. It, it's the thing you look at it and go, this can't possibly work. But it's fantastic. Yeah. Um, and let's put one thing out. It shows that John Claude Van Damme can actually act, especially yeah. in his given language. That's exactly yeah, what I was going to say. Uh, John Jean Claude Van Damme can act, and that the scene in the post office where it sort of comes out of the action is a bit over the top, but it still it's like giving this really long monologue to camera. Like, oh. Boy's got some acting chops there. How surprising! Yeah, I think that's to me. That's the one. That's actually the one scene that didn't work in the context of the film, but it does show that he's a great actor. Yeah, so um, it was a bit much a decent actor film. at least. Um, um, but yeah. What? Not what? You get this strange sort of metadrama where it works as a sort of character analysis of everything that John Claude's done in his life up to this point. And it's interesting in that respect, and yet it also still works as a fairly generic-ish sort of heist drama, where um, he's basically he's. He, he wanders into a bank which is in the middle of a, a, a heist and for some reason is mistakenly fingered as the man who's actually pulling off the heist which provokes a little bit of a drama around it and there's a there's a hostage standoff and it's all sort of very dog the afternoon things you may have seen before but it, it still works as a standard heist drama and it works as a strange character analysis and it works as a sort of showcase for Jean-Claude Van Damme and the <laughs> fact that it works at all is remarkable the fact that it works at all these levels is just fantastic yeah, so I can only think to describe it as some sort of a mental dream committed to film, and it does. It's bizarre that it's, it's on paper. It just 
no, no one, no one part of it should work on paper, let alone the sort of the the, the gestalt entity that is the finished film. But I, bizarre, mostly bizarre. Um, I have to confess, the first time I watched this, I fell asleep halfway through. But that's because I was trying to watch it at one o'clock in the morning, and that wasn't happening. And I, I immediately the, the next night watched it again from the start because I was I was thoroughly enjoying it up until the point that physical stress had made me go to sleep. Well, I think I said when I was suggesting it that we watch it for a podcast that it did sound like a bad dream (laughs) perhaps it still does but it's a really good dream not a bad dream so yeah it's well worth watching uh, bizarrely enough, I mean, I can't think of many more films. I mean, obviously, it's it's not perhaps not critically as worthy as some other ones we've spoken about tonight. But in terms of inventiveness and just sheer entertainment, I actually can't think of many. <laughs> if you're familiar with Jean Claude Van Damme's Canon, um, I, I mean, his body of work, not his gun or anything <laughs> like that. And, um, I can't, I can't actually think of something more interesting to recommend to you because yeah, it's quite, um, quite unique. <laughs> If you've seen any Jean-Claude Van Damme film, you owe it to yourself to watch at least the first 10 minutes, where not only will you be treated to the best studio ident I've ever seen. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, that is great. But you also get that fantastic opening sequence where it's like the really long tracking shot of him like, doing this this big action sequence, um, kicking people in the face, and it's one big long tracking shot. And then he sort of barges through the door <laughs> at the back and confronts this very bored uh, Japanese director. And he basically confesses, it's really hard for me to do this. I'm 40-odd years old. <laughs> It's, yeah. it's, it's, it's one of the best openings I've seen in a good long while. It's incredibly yeah, it's just, audacious. It does such a great job of um, subverting your preconceptions about somebody like Jean Claude Van Damme. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and certainly, you, you can't imagine though it's sort of a running gag in the film about Steven Seagal getting the parts he's going up for, but you just can't mm-hmm. imagine something like something like Seagal doing this. But no, it's something. I mean, I'd be interested to see if. I mean, I don't know if it will happen, but I'd be interested to see what offers he gets off the back of this, certainly, because it's it's the only opportunity I've ever seen him had to flex any kind of acting chops, and he, he does actually have them. I just can't help but feel that it's been undermarketed slightly, and the vast majority of people would just say, oh, it's a John claude Van Damme film. Uh, I don't like him. And I don't really think it... In fact, it may even help if you don't like him, because you're going to see him in a completely different light if you if you give this film half a chance. It's absolutely bizarre, but fantastic. Fantastic. Fads on film. Fads on film. From one of our earlier podcasts discussing ageing action men, we talk about the Expendable series, where of course JCVD features as a villain in the second outing. The thing about the Expendables is the Expendables actually didn't sound like a bad idea, mm. and I, I guess in total the franchise probably isn't, but the first one is a quite poor example of it. The first Expendables was R-rated mm-hmm. um, in states. I can't remember if it was 15 or 18 over here, but... I'm sure it um, was a 15. It's... I think my main problem with Expendables, and certainly came apart when I watched it again another week there, is that uh, it just can't decide on a tone. It mm. starts off with a, basically kind of being quite cartoonish as well. I mean, it's not too far into the film before uh, I believe it's Dolph Lundgren's shotgun blasts someone in half again. <laughs> <laughs> and you get. Yep. I definitely got the impression that this was setting up for another Commando film. It was going to be a kind of a light-hearted romp as people go and murder That's their it. way through lots of enemies. It's ridiculously uh, overpowered weaponry. Yeah, and to be oh, fair, oh, oh. May- maybe half of it is, but the other half is trying to be uh, telling a, a relatively straight drama about uh, oppression and CIA activity in a, mm. in a small island, and that falls 
not it's not so much flat. I mean, it's not. It, you know, neither half of those films is particularly bad. But when you you cut and shut them together, the welding doesn't hold up quite so well. Hmm. Of course, what the series is probably most famous for is its cast, and that will kind of go through with the the rest of them. It follows through with these finally Sylvester Stallone, Jason Statham together hmm. at last, along with Det Lee, Dolph Lundgren, Randy Couture. In the first one, you've even got Steve Austin. Of, yeah, of wrestling I, f- fame I forget he was in the Terry first one Cruise. actually. I, yeah, I, so I saw the first one quite some time ago, and I haven't had a chance to rewatch it before this podcast. But yeah, I'd completely forgotten he was in that. I guess as a Excuse to watch some of your famous, your, your favourite action stars from, or arguably from yesteryear, maybe not so much anymore, to get them to get together. I suppose it works on that level, but for me, the first one is probably the least effective of the whole uh, franchise. Mm. It just doesn't quite have a clear idea of what it's trying to do. Um, I think what I think was missing from the first one, which the the second two entries benefit from, in that they were obviously toned down by the studio to appeal to a wider audience, is that they kind of upped the fun quotient, the kind of nudge, yes. nudge, wink, wink uh, thing, and that actually serves those films better, I think, than the attempts at sort of camaraderie uh, in the first movie, especially between yeah. uh, Statham and Stallone, and with like Lundgren as this bizarre sort of outlier, yeah. um, left field <laughs> character, which is really quite quite, quite odd, but um, uh, yeah, I think the first, the first film was sort of serviceable, and there's kind of a case to be made for it, I think it was a nice idea and it, obviously that movie had at least had the good sense to be knowing in that, well, yeah, the whole point of this, the clues in the title, yes, we know we're old men, um, yeah. and this is kind of how we, this is probably how we feel about our place in the um, in the movie industry right now. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think at the time, was did Schwarzenegger cameo in the first one? Or was that the second one? Yes. I think he did. Think He's he not appear in some building towards yes, the end. Yes, he does. Yeah, yeah no, he didn't have a, a, he didn't have a bigger role until the second one, right? But even having like sort of a little Schwarzenegger cameo because he was still very much um, ensconced as the the governor of California at the time and had given up acting, right? Yes. So yeah, it had it had a good idea, I think, the first movie, and it was certainly, I think, when it was announced, it was kind of like, yes, this actually on some level this actually makes perfect sense. I can't believe someone hasn't thought of this before. Yeah, it's kind of like um, the action movie Supergroup. Yeah, it put me in mind of the old. Um, proposition that there would be a Bond reunion film with all the old Bonds where it would turn out that James Bond is just a code name and that these people yeah. all fulfilled the role at one point or another. Um, obviously that never came to fruition and I doubt it ever will. Yeah. <laughs> that really will be old man action. Um, <laughs> but um, it's like, yes, why hasn't someone done this before? And uh, actually an idea that has some potential, it was just just kind of let down by, as you say, Scott, um, a, a real lack of direction and a not particularly great script. And Honestly, I think sort of Stallone and um, Statham trying to riff off of each other. I think probably Statham does a, a better job than Stallone does, to be honest. That that part of it kind of falls falls yeah. flat. But um, the second and third entries at least were a little bit more fun, I think. Yeah, I think they've got a bit of clearer idea of where they want to shoot for uh, and a little bit more, as you say, levity. The relationships between characters does seem to actually get a bit better, as you might expect, I suppose, they've had a bit more time, but they do seem a bit more believable. Uh, one of the problems with the first film as well was that it did have very various sections that were clearly set up to give Steve Austin his moment, Randy Couture his moment, yeah. Jet Li his moment, and that still, to an extent, goes to the rest of them, but it's a bit more organic in the way that a lot of it feels. The second one, its plot is arguably a bit more stupid. Um, it's I got, don't even uh, remember the plot. This is the one with evil uh, Jean-Claude Van Damme, who's coercing uh, a village to 
run his uranium mines and he's you know kidnapping the men, making them work, and kidnapping the children and making them work. I don't remember stuff. that at all. So that, that that is really the setup for more or less is that the expendables have to go in to stop him from his uh, warlord slash kidnapping antics. And it, <laughs> they need to save him from himself. Yes, <laughs> and uh, yeah, I think it works a lot better. It's clearly a, a, a dumber film, but it's much more enjoyable for that. Uh, it has a clearer idea of where it wants to go. Some pretty good action scenes. Uh, I think a lot of the heavy lifting is done by Jason Statham again mm-hmm. in terms of just keeping it likable. But that's what Jason Statham does. That's why he's there. A lot of nice in jokes of having uh, Chuck Norris as well in it as the ever the cast ever expand. That's it, uh, and, and larger roles for Bruce Willis and uh, Schwarzenegger in this one, right? Yes, yes. It's it's only real weak spot is uh, parachuting Liam Hemsworth in at the start and then <laughs> killing him off in short order to try and make you care and have a reason to care about the rest of the film. Yeah. As um, if memory serves, this is where. Uh, Jean-Claude Van Damme spin kicks a knife into his chest <laughs> to kill him, right, yes. which of course is uh, something you cannot do. The most efficient and practical base. methods of execution. <laughs> I can't believe that never took off in the States as one of the options for uh, for state execution. You know, you have the chair, you can have a hanging, lethal injection, firing squad, uh, Van Damme spin kick with a knife. Yeah, I'll go for that one, it sounds great! <laughs> It's, it's how he wanted to go out. That's it. Sorry, Van Damme's ill at the moment. Would you prefer Swayze to rip your throat out? So, I mean, for me, a lot of the second one is basically what the first one, in my mind, should have been. Hmm. The third one, perhaps, is pushing it a little bit too far, but it still works in terms of being an entertaining uh, film, if not a good one. Well, the third one works hard to set up the sort of the next generation now, doesn't it? Which will yeah. kind of defeat, if that's what happens, that will kind of defeat the purpose of the Expendables, because yeah. they will no longer be old and decrepit. Um, <laughs> you're talking about people like Ronda Rousey, and um, who else is in there? Ba-ba-ba, their names have just gone right out of my head. There are not a lot of guys I know. I know Victor Ortiz. And, that's right, uh, Victor what's, Ortiz. What's you got? you got Glenn Powell, but I don't really can't remember think what else he's been in. Kellen Lutz. The, the new cast is certainly nothing like as recognisable as the old hands. No, no, no. So it'll be interesting to see what they do with that there. Although what I will say for the third one, um, like ludicrous, ludicrous body count aside for a 12 yes. circuit, it didn't even really sink in at the time. It was the next morning after I got out of bed. My first thought after getting out of bed, having watched that the night before, was, <laughs> Jesus, that film had a body count. For a yes. 12 certificate film. I think this is the biggest, biggest proponent of this debate to be had around, look, what really is the difference between something honestly, how much of a difference does showing bullet hits make? This is, we can clearly see what's happening to these people if anything, I mean some of the violence is probably more realistic because when you shoot people with a handgun they don't tend to explode in great red gobs, they tend to sort of fall over without much visible visible damage and so in many ways, the violence portrayed in this film is far more realistic yes. than in a film of a higher rating. And I think something of a body count over 200 or something, if I remember the IMDb facts page correctly. Yeah. It's insane. It's utterly insane. Uh, three was probably the most enjoyable, as far as I remember it, of uh, of the trilogy. I think overall, as you say, Scott, it's kind of stretching some of the some of the aspects of it a bit too far. And also there's a huge question mark over why the hell did uh, Jet Li even bother to turn up uh, when his entire role in the film lasts about two minutes and it's him in a helicopter with a machine gun. He doesn't utilise his martial arts skills at any point. (laughs) Very odd. I can only assume that was a tax dodge or something. Yeah, a great great deal of fun. But um, So two questions. 
why are we allowed to show this to an audience of 12 year olds when it's quite insanely violent um, and B when when are we going to forgive Mel Gibson um, because he was actually pretty good in this yeah well, it was very difficult to forgive Mel Gibson because he's such an asshole um, absolutely he- but the guy the guy is a charismatic presence um, and at some point surely either we have to just Either we have to put our foot down and go, no, he just can't be in films at all, or we acknowledge <laughs> that he's shown he's he's been penitent, and let's just let him have some fun again because the guys, the guys, are, for obviously all of his ills aside, he is a, he's a hoot and he's a genuinely charismatic screen presence. And I mean, as limited as his role in this is, he is the most fun thing in it, um, and I think he's one of the best things in it. And I kind of I kind of feel like we can start to give him an opportunity again. Well, it's the old thing of whether you can uh, hold an artist separate from you know his actual persona, uh, his yeah. artist separate from his persona, which is something you struggle with, particularly a lot of writers, because a lot of writers tend to have, you know, they can produce very good books, but then they also turn around and be you know absolute abysmal crazy humans. people. Yeah, be yeah. Arson Scott Card, for instance. Yeah, exactly, absolutely. Exactly the person I was thinking of. Yeah, yeah, and I don't know. Mel Gibson's has his mistakes, but it seems like a lot of them are just rooted in being drunk. So yes, maybe maybe we can forgive him. And there's a, there's certainly a number of very obnoxious drunk based actors who who wind up still getting roles like um, maybe Russell Crowe, who's yeah an, another appalling person, but you know a good actor. So maybe it is time. Maybe it's time we just have an amnesty for poor old Mel. I think so. I think so. And ov- obviously, as Scotsman, he's given us, in particular, such a, <laughs> <laughs> such an important cinematic legacy. Such a cultural milestone. Absolutely. A millstone, maybe. With his, with his historically impeccable um, presentation of Braveheart. Yeah, um, but, but that aside, I mean, am I alone in thinking probably three is the, probably the most fun instalment? It's... It's probably the biggest, um, it's, it's the most flashy. Possibly, I think, two's marginally better, but, you know, it's, they both are what they are, and what they are is, you know, fun, brainless action movies. You could you could barely distinguish between the two on that basis from, from my thinking. There you go. There you go. Fads on film. Fads on film. One of JCVD's most high-profile, or at least immovable, films next, with Street Fighter. Craig, why don't you tell us a wee bit about Street Fighter? Oh, Street Fighter then. My, my. At Shadowloo, M. Bison did not surrender. Oh, yeah. And Colonel Guile met Destiny in quite a similar way. Did it, did it, Semi-circle and hard punch, did it, did will lead to a meaty big crunch. <laughs> Ah, yes. Self-styled dictator and all-round asshole General M. Bison has seized control of the tropical Asian nation of Shadaloo during a tumultuous civil war. Bison has taken hostages, including scientists and numerous personnel of the Allied Nations Army, and is demanding a mere $20 billion in ransom money be paid to him within three days, or he'll execute them all. This is like a red rag to a bull, especially if your bull in question is Colonel William Guile, commanding officer of the Allied Nations Force in Shadaloo, and a man with whom Bison would appear to have some long-running beef. After a brief setup with a pair trade clearly bromantic insults by alternately hijacking live local TV news feeds, Guile somewhat stupidly appeals to his pal Carlos Blanca, one of the kidnapped soldiers, to hold it together while he launches a rescue mission. 
thus alerting Bison to both the fact that an assault is imminent and also that he possesses obvious emotional leverage over Guile. (laughs) (laughs) Variously, the assorted peripheral characters, including news reporter Chun-Li and her camera crew, Bison's strong-arm scientist Dao Sim, local arms dealer Sagat, hustlers Ryu and Ken, to name but a few, all reveal themselves to be magnificently accomplished martial artists, with a broad range of motivations to either serve or kick the ass of Bison. So the forces of good and evil are poised to face each other in a quest for vengeance and the freedom of Shadaloo, and we the viewer are faced with several teeth-gnawingly important questions. Will JCVD do his split-kick shtick? Is Eddie Honda really managing to do Shadaloo on $25 a day? Will Bison realise his dream to build a new city in his own image? Bisonopolis, with a food court large enough to attract all the big franchise players. <laughs> Only 100 minutes of borderline mental sight gags and martial arts posturing will tell. Stephen E. D'Souza writes and directs. I think one of the th- <laughs> one of the things to be said about these movies, Scott, is that we're not going to spend a lot of time talking about plot, because bizarrely, perhaps with the Super Mario Brothers movie aside, the whole game of translating video games to the big screen in its infancy tended to fall back, as you quite rightly say, on the perhaps counterintuitive <laughs> subgenre of the beat-em-up, the most thinly plotted of the video games. And... Quite why that decision was made is beyond me, but certainly in the discussion we've had today, it makes things a little bit easier from that point of view. Yeah, <laughs> that's perhaps more applicable to the other things we'll talk about. I mean, I actually could talk about the plot of Street Fighter for some time, as it's mental. Um, because <laughs> it's, other movies are far more straightforward than what they've attempted to do, and this is pretty bananas in comparison. I was reading an article uh, on Kotaku, um, thanks to the folks at the Exploding Helicopter podcast for pointing me in that direction. It's one of these ones, I mean, as you say, written and directed by Stephen D'Souza. It's his first gig as director, but in terms of writing, he's not got a bad track record by this point. He'd done no. the likes of Commando, he's done Running Man. I, I was um, going to say, you can see the similarities between this and Commando in particular, right? Crazy, crazy yes. dictator on an island paradise. Yes, and from what he was saying uh, in the in this fairly long dissection it was another one of these shoots from hell really um, as a director he kind of got steamrolled by the studios and Capcom uh, so his initial idea was let's focus on just a few characters and not go overboard with all these other ones because if you try and put all the roster from the Street Fighter game in, it's going to be crazy. You're going to have to find things for all these characters to do. It's going to be a complete mess. So let's not do that. And everyone went, yeah, yeah, that sounds like a good idea. And then six months later, they've insisted that he write in all these other characters as well. So th- this is why you wind up with this, this nonsense like Shun Lee coming around as a reporter who's also trying to fight Bison with a boxer who's also a cameraman who, <laughs> who was, who um, Bison had some sort of dealings with corrupting his flight game and also a sumo wrestler as well because yes um, th- <laughs> because that's probably what happened yes <laughs> to, to quote Hudson Hawk not a D'Souza joint yes just just a very puzzling and uh, convoluted plot that tries desperately to find something useful for all of these characters to do and in that comes with some quite strange moments that give this a sort of charm. It's strange looking back at some of the reviews at the time because they were saying, oh, you, this, is a, this is a joke you can't take this seriously. You can't take a bazooka-toting Kylie Minogue seriously. And it's like, I don't think you were ever supposed to. No. Um, none of this. This is clearly a comedy action. It's going for comedy with some success and some outright failures. It's, it's a strange beast where about half the stuff that it's trying to do 
is a comedy scene. Kind of lands and the other half falls so yeah. flat it becomes funny just because it's so bad. I am now at the point of my life where I don't really watch bad movies ironically anymore. Uh, <laughs> I, <I've, laughs> but this is one film that I don't know whether it's just nostalgia from the days when I did watch bad films ironically or if I actually do find that this is just generally so strange and mind-bending that it's worth watching. Uh, <laughs> I mean, on, on a logical level, it's a terrible, terrible, terrible film uh, full of just weird action scenes not being shot properly. It's, as I say, a very troubled shoot. Raul Julie, of course, you mentioned as M. Bison is perhaps the, the one thing that, that should clue you into the fact that this is not intended to be taken entirely seriously, as he is the largest of all possible hams mm-hmm. uh, running around eating as much of the scenery as could be imagined. And uh, there's enough moments between that and the most coked-out performance in Jean-Claude Van Damme's career. Um, <laughs> very much the grips of substance addiction that some condemned yep. to direct a video for for some years after this and it is just a mental film so I'll tell you this it's certainly not a good film but I would never accuse it of being boring <laughs> uh, there's lots of many strange little touches in it that, uh, that for some reason make me kind of like it it's, yep. it's a tough thing to actually recommend anyone do but I think if you do you will get some enjoyment out of how crazy it is you, you uh, have I'm so glad to hear you say this because you have said almost <laughs> entirely what I wanted to say and I was so worried that you were going to savage it and I was going to have to be the guy who put my hand up and went I kind of liked it and but as you say I kind of like it in the sense that I'm not ever going to recommend anyone else watch it on on your head be it if you want to watch it but I've got to I've got to be honest Scott like I sat there and I, albeit just sitting on my iPad watching it because there's no way my other half would tolerate <laughs> this instead of EastEnders or anything like that so I sat there with my headphones on my iPad and like I laughed out loud three or four times and that yeah. is more than can be said of some films that actually you know pause themselves as out and out comedies and market themselves as such yes. in the cinema <laughs> and I know that there are all these, like you say, and even now people seem like massively, massively divided on it. But especially at the time, the number of people who were calling this out is one of the worst films of all time. And yeah, it yeah. most definitely is not. And no. anyone who says they are concerned that they're not sure whether this movie is supposed to be taken seriously or not is already taking crazy pills because yes. <laughs> it is quite clearly intended as a comedy from the very, very outset. And at no point did I think it was trying to be something different. Unlike Mortal Kombat, which we'll talk about um, briefly, where I felt like that movie was on a bizarre sort of constant course correction between wanting to be taken seriously and then trying to be a bit funny and then wanting to be taken seriously again. At no point does this film want you to take it seriously. And there are so many sight gags and sort of nice throwaway background touches and whatnot that might yeah. not otherwise have expected. I uh, honestly, I I'm, I don't know how soon I would go and watch it again, but I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it. It's not a good film, but I enjoyed watching it, and I can't ask for a lot more than that. Yeah, and the, as you say, there are lots of silly little Easter eggs in there that just elevate it a touch, like Bison's controlling his mind defence system and he's using a Street Fighter 2 joystick yeah. from the arcade cabinets to do it. <laughs> <laughs> Was the best bit, I think the biggest laugh was when they're all sort of gathered at the sort of arms fair and they're all in their tent and then Chun-Li comes on the television to goad them <laughs> yeah, and yes. shows shows them strapping their one of their trucks with explosives and as as they're watching this truck rolling towards the camera, everybody gathered in the tent realises that the truck is actually outside rolling towards them and Zangief, who, the Russian wrestler who is portrayed as being somewhat thick throughout the film <laughs> shouts quick, change the channel <laughs> 
That is like that is one of the funniest things I've seen in a film. I think almost ever. Never mind like the last six months or anything. This this film has got some stuff going for it, and some of that writing. You again, it's flawed, and you can see where there's interference from the studio. But even despite all of that, it hangs together a lot better than some of the other films I, I suspect we'll be talking about, and it feels closer to a complete package than than uh, than the yeah. others but I'm a, I find it a little bit strange that people were quite so quite so hard on it I suppose this this might sound weird and I might regret saying this but perhaps it was a little bit ahead of its time yeah it's perhaps a little bit of the uh, last action hero thing going for it where I think mm. uh, time has been kinder to it than uh, it was initially uh, received if you know what I mean it's a, a, got a little bit of a post-modern ironicism going on in there uh, yeah. which helps leaving it a little bit it's perhaps a little frustrating because a lot of the flaws in this were really uh, down to a number of scenario uh, situations that couldn't be resolved I mean a lot of this budget went straight to Jean-Claude Van Damme yes. who I think for does quite well given that he was apparently uh, <laughs> Incapacitated with drugs most days, yeah, uh, due to and, the- and having it away with Kylie Minogue off screen as well. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Whilst married to someone else entirely. And uh, of course, this sadly is Raul Julia's final film. Mm-hmm. Uh, he just started this after, it was almost immediately after some like operations on his uh, stomach. It was stomach cancer, wasn't it? Um, yeah. So he, when he showed up on set, basically he was, he, he was in no condition to really do anything. So no. shooting got delayed while they had to basically <laughs> stop him from looking quite so much like a skeleton. And you can still see that in a few scenes, which is actually a bit sad to see. So it looks, yeah. looks very gaunt in a few scenes um, but by he god he's, he, a little bit. he put some spirit he into acts it. his heart off oh yes and uh, he, he really is the linchpin that makes this watchable his, yeah. uh, his over the top and you know what this the speeches is, really are great this isn't I don't I don't even think this is the kick in the epitaph for him that everybody kind of makes out that it is either everybody talks about this film no. in terms of oh what a disgrace that this should be Raul Julia's last film and I don't think that's the way to look at it at all I think if he were still here with us now he'd look back on it probably quite fondly not, yeah. that, I'm, not that I'm one to speak for you know <laughs> I'm not Raul Julia's mouthpiece from the afterlife, but, um, you know, I think there are worst examples of films he's been involved in than this. Yeah, and he has better moments in this film than probably in quite a lot of his career. Things like the, hmm. the little speech that he gives to Chun-Li about how the, you know, the day that Bison <laughs> graced his village. <laughs> you know, the whole for me it was Tuesday thing. It's a, it's a fantastic meme-worthy, if you're going to do that kind of thing, yeah. uh, little it's, speech. It, and- it's, not, it's not that he was in this film unaware of of what it was and he's been made to look <laughs> a fool he's absolutely aware of what movie he's involved in and he he conducts himself accordingly and with great aplomb yeah but yeah just bizarre yeah probably unfortunate thing uh, other unfortunate thing that this scheduling issue caused was that basically a lot of the what we'd normally been shooting first all the dramatic scenes with uh, Raul Julie and all that stuff the actual acting component of it had to get shunted to the back end of the schedule and all the stunts had to come up first which was normally the kind of time where they'd be, they'd be taking actors aside and you know running them through the paces and practicing and rehearsing all that sort of stuff and yes. basically they kind of weren't able to do that they had to go straight on to just shooting that stuff so that's why the actual fight scenes fall a little bit flat and it's unfortunately the weakest aspect of it is probably all the action scenes which is unfortunate mm-hmm. and something that you recast as in basically a, a comic action movie a sort of a light James Bond spoof effectively that is the weakest part of it uh, when it does try and <laughs> set away its action scenes they don't work all that well mm. and again another thing that was puzzlingly hampered when they did the first cut of this and it got an R rating and then everyone went, no, no, we can't have that. So it got cut back down. But basically everything 
that was remotely violent got cut out and it went down yeah. to a G, which was not violent enough. So that's why they added in one instance of Jean-Claude Van Damme swearing to make it back to a PG-13. Yeah, I did wonder about that. That was bizarre because funnily enough, as I was watching this, I actually felt like in terms of the level of violence depicted, because probably more people are visibly killed in this film by some margin than Mortal Kombat. But whereas Mortal oh, Kombat yes. was a game marketed almost entirely uh, and predicated almost entirely on the ridiculous levels of gore, yes. you know, Street Fighter 2 was a much more um, sanitised fighting game. Oh, sorry, the Street Fighter games, uh, sorry, Street Fighter 2 being the most obvious influence yeah. here culturally overall, but the Street Fighter games in general are much more sanitised experience and uh, uh, a more technical game than the Mortal Kombat games. And I actually felt exactly, like... Yes. oh Yeah. I, I felt like this was... The level of violence in this film was pitched more appropriately in terms of the game it was derived from. So, yeah, it was. Uh, it came as a surprise then to read that it had initially been much more violent and that several edits were made for that. Um, whereas, bizarrely enough, Mortal Kombat, uh, again, which we'll talk about soon, probably suffers from not being violent enough uh, in comparison to the source material. But Yes, and uh, we should point out that compared to the source material, this has no relation whatsoever. No. Other than the names and appearance of the characters. Yes, uh, everything else is very loosely inspired by it. I mean, the only actual video game commonality between this and the series is, curiously enough, the video game adaptation of this movie, which was adapted from the video game. Ah. (laughs) I've fallen down a meta hole. (laughs) One of the strangest reverse adaptations. Uh, And also the reason that they have cast... You you may perhaps remember Captain Sawada and wondered why he has no purpose. The guy Kenya Sawada was playing, uh, one of Gail's sidekicks who was leading the commando team but didn't really actually seem to do anything but it was one of these another uh, instance where I think Capcom kind of forced that in because he was intending to be there was plans for Capcom to adapt a number of its franchises to mm-hmm. the big screen which were put on ice after the, the reception this got but he was going to be the kind of uh, a kind of common actor amongst all of them he'd be kind of Capcom's you know the face of Capcom yeah. uh, although that didn't actually go anywhere so yeah so a puzzling addition I think they were going to cast him uh, initially as a as, uh, Ryu but um he, he doesn't really speak English, so that didn't fly so well. So an alternate plan was hastily concocted, which didn't really work particularly well, but um, it's in amongst so much other superfluous nonsense <laughs> it's, yeah. it kind of just gets lost in the shuffle the, the casting of this is the casting of this really is interesting and it's, it's interesting to hear about the studio interference and when we talk about you know so much I think you know 8 million of a 35 million dollar budget went straight to Van Damme but when you you know that sounds like a bit of a little bit more financial prudence was in order but when you say as you know the plan originally was to have a much smaller cast it kind of explains yeah. the fact that you have these sort of much most of the most of the periphery characters are, are much you know less recognisable um, although certainly more recognisable yeah. again than the Mortal Kombat crew but also that Stephen D'Souza deferred his salary in order to pay for the remainder of the cast which if that's down mm. to Capcom's interference seems are awfully unfair um, yes. an awfully unfair burden for D'Souza to have uh, taken on board but you've still got people like Wes Studi in there amongst them um, yeah. you know these who would go on after who had who'd previously been in like Last of the Mohicans and Dances with Wolves and who I think the year after this would go on to be in Heat to play for so there's like you know there are some interesting characters in there and I get the feeling that everybody knows what they signed up for there's not anyone here who's really taking this movie too seriously and all the sort of incidental characters I didn't think that the whole thing of the buddy buddy partnership between Ryu and Ken was going to play out all that well and it did and yeah. the character of Zangief could be like teeth grindingly <laughs> 
you know, could could be that sort of like oh cringe cringe worthy, but actually yeah. his stupidity actually really pays off towards the end was the, the revelation from DJ that Zangief, what are you talking about? Don't you realise, mate? You you are one of the bad guys. <laughs> and it transpires that he thought he's been on the side of the good guys all along. <laughs> all of that stuff pays off and everybody everybody pitches the performance at just about the right level. And it honestly was not the cringe fest I expected. Yeah, just a, a really strange little movie and I can understand why people don't like it. But I, actually, I think if you go in with the right frame of mind and probably as I did a big glass of gin a big gin and tonic you might surprise yourself let's say I'm not I'm not going to recommend it to anyone because I don't want the I don't want to come back on that if anybody <laughs> if anybody has a terrible experience but like I'm I'm kind of glad I watched it yeah again just to, just to make sure I'm not misrepresented it but there is nothing here that's not on some level been thought out it might not have landed it might not have been mm-hmm. executed exactly the way you'd want it but this isn't a lazy film and if you watch any number no. of uh, these kind of video game films I know I'll throw in some letter references at the end but there's a number of really lazy cash grabs that have been done in well not just this but in the horror like direct video horrors and all these kind of things there's some films that you just yeah. cannot believe were made it's the the bare minimum of what you could put onto film and call a movie and this is yeah. not it there's some serious thought and going to yeah. everything behind this and it's not been not landed it's not not fully been no. you know the vision that we're going for and but it has a lot of worth to it it's interesting on a, on a great number of levels and it's, it's i would probably recommend most people try and watch it at some point certainly if you have an interest in video games and you've avoided it so far Next up, some quintessential John Claude with Bloodsport, where we were comparing it to Enter the Dragon, which admittedly isn't the fairest of fights. Bloodsport, Scott. Um, Bloodsport. Now, because Bloodsport is, well, Bloodsport, I'd either not noticed or cared prior to this. (laughs) Cared about the uh, text appearing at the end of this film, claiming it to be (laughs) <laughs> I've, got, I've got a screenshot Based of that. on the real-life exploits of Frank Ducks. Now, this holds up in as far yes. as this is an accurate portrayal of what Frank Ducks claims he did, although, <laughs> at the risk of legal action, Frank Ducks is an inveterate liar to the point that if he told me water was wet, I'd assume the opposite on instinct. <laughs> Frank, Frank Ducks is about to be elected to Congress, I believe. <laughs> Uh, right, so here, John. Can I just say that I appreciate the fact that you refer to him as Frank Ducks because the film goes out of its way to mention it. <laughs> Actually, it's pronounced Dukes. Nope. No, no, it's not. <laughs> it's not Frank. For me, he's Ducks. Yes. I know you threatened to punch the screenwriter in the face, <laughs> but it's most definitely Ducks. You may think of it as a slight. It is intended as such. Um, <laughs> uh, here, Jean Claude Van Damme inhabits the persona of Ducks as we are introduced to him training in some no-doubt top-secret army facility that totally existed, before ducking out to meet his sensei, Senzo Tanaka. Ducks has been chosen to enter the Kumite, a top-secret international underground fight tournament that totally happens, as this documentary will tell us. (laughs) It's also one of those top-secret underground things that literally everyone knows about, apart from one reporter. But before we get to that, we need to flash back to a young Ducks and how he convinced Senzo to train Ducks in the art of ninjutsu alongside Senzo's son in Unheard of Honor. Uh, but perhaps the most notable thing about this segment is that he managed to find a kid actor that's more wooden than Van Damme was at this point in his career, which scientists had previously determined to be <laughs> theoretically impossible. Well, no, that's that's underplayed, Scott. I, mean, I assume they got this kid to try and make it sound 
so he sounded a little <laughs> like Van Damme. But Van Damme has been proven time and time again to actually be able to talk like a human being. <laughs> Even, uh, Please don't. There's this kid. I'm finding it very difficult. To sit, to, uh, I've got a list of comments in front of me in Apple Notes that I made because... It's been a long time since I watched this film and I made about two pages of notes just on young Van Damme. And it's, I'm, I'm finding it very difficult to not mention any of them. And the only reason I'm not is because none of them are appropriate. None of them, none of them, none of them would be deemed inoffensive. A lot of it's like the stage direction was again, but with less emotion. <laughs> like I, I mean, it's always, it's hard to, to not. Do this, but you feel bad about having a go at somebody who's a kid. <laughs> but, um, but uh, the best I can say about the person playing the young Van Damme character, young Frank Duke's character, is that, um, he does a halfway believable representation of a person wearing a hat. <laughs> because at no point did anybody show this kid footage of Van Damme or let him meet Van Damme or let him watch the dailies of Van Damme. And say, this man but younger. <laughs> the scenes that's gathering make it worth watching this movie, and that's my opinion. And I won't have a lot else to say about it. But <laughs> will will it surprise you to know, Craig, that um that that young Van, that young Frank, um was never in anything again ever. <laughs> this is his one and only short- credit very short filmography on imdb he's still he's still sitting next to the phone now i just don't understand my agent never calls yeah uh, senzo's kids had previously also been invited to a committee but he did not survive the tournament of death something something reclaim honor something something vengeance so off ducks goes with two military is that how he died i sort of i completely lost track during this film it's like he's dead at one point and like uh, did he? Uh, okay, he's dead, and I forgot why. That's why I took from it anyway. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this is Revenge how much... me, hemp knight. <laughs> oh no, that was another film. This is how much um, this film's um, grabbed my attention. <laughs> so, off ducks goes with two military investigators on his tail, trying to stop him. One of whom plays played by a young Forrest Whitaker, which always surprises me. <laughs> yeah. Then I'm yeah. surprised that I'm surprised because really, who devotes brain space to memorizing blood sport? <laughs> <laughs> I, um, I. Forrest Whitaker is possibly incredibly the one person incredibly out of place in this film for the one person who might have any sense that he could act at all. <laughs> I, I I will hold my hand up to that, but we'll come to that in a minute, Scott. And I, but I feel like I've got to get out of jail free card, so carry on. Uh, ducks heads off to Hong Kong, running into fellow fighter, American brute slash halfwit Ray Jackson, played by Donald <laughs> Gibb. It's good to see the BGs branching out, and Victor Lin against you. <laughs> This is value. This is content. This is why we've been missing Craig. (laughs) (laughs) Ray Jackson and uh, Victor Lin Kensu, who becomes their chaperone in the fight club scene. Ducks also runs into journalist slash exposition cipher Janice Kent, baby Lee Ayers, 
who is also the love interest for the irresistibly charismatic and beautiful Frank Dux, at least as Frank Dux tells it. (laughs) (laughs) So the tournament begins with the combatants punching and kicking each other in various combinations, leading up to a fight between Dux and nefarious end boss Bolo Young's Chong Lee, who is a big dirty cheater. And also a murderer, (laughs) but it feels as though the film thinks that throwing chalk in Dux's eyes is the bigger crime, at least, as Frank Dux tells it. It's such a strange way they've uh, created that character too because when they're warning Frank about the kumite at the beginning and they're saying, uh, here's um, Bo Young's character and like, um, last year he actually killed a person it suggests that, okay, yeah. that's, that was, it was like out of, out of um, the ordinary but so he's like, he's really dangerous and mm. because he fights so hard but the, not that he basically he spends four or five different rounds you see him straight up murdering people <laughs> I was going to say I found it I found it really odd this time round to watch it because clearly on two or three occasions he like he picks people's prone people up yeah. and like snaps their necks but nothing's ever made of it except one of his latter opponents like his last opponent before Ducks where they have this big moment of someone rushes out and checks his pulse and they're like oh my god he's dead I'm like, but what about <laughs> The other three guys yeah. he fought before, he's who just straight he, up murdered people. As far as I can see, he snapped their necks. Or yeah. they, oh, did they get better? <laughs> really odd. Obviously, this film is not a patch on Into the Dragon in any aspect, but judged oh, but alongside its contemporaries in the glut of Western-backed martial arts action films that ruled the eighties with an iron fist, this is resolutely okay. Uh, director Arnold <laughs> actually is quite the reference list as an assistant director, and I don't think any of the problems with the film are necessarily of his making. Uh, Van Damme's fight choreography is fine, although it's not his best. The kickboxer the year later was substantially better, if memory serves. Kickboxer's better in every yeah. way. Uh, but it, it's at least serviceable here. Um, however, <clears throat> anything outside of the Kubite area is like watching, well, a bad actor. I couldn't think of appropriate simile there. <laughs> now, Van Damme would later go on to show a decent amount of charisma and even range and ability in the likes of JCVD and Jean-Claude Van Johnston latterly, Mm -hmm. but here, not so much, and which makes most of the non-punchy, kicky sections kind of rough. Even in Kickboxer, Scott, it's still quite rough in that regard, but Kickboxer is just, it's light years ahead of Bloodsport. Yeah, he he comes on an awful lot. I mean, I will say, like, some of the stuff with Donald Gibb is goofy enough to be ironically enjoyable rather than actually enjoyable, I suppose, but Bolo Young, as we've said, just makes for an incredibly imposing antagonist, so it's not a complete bust. Um, In fact, it's although it's several cuts below any of Bruce Lee's work, I still like Bloodsport quite a bit. You're ever in a situation where you're choosing between this and Enter the Dragon, for some reason I can't possibly imagine. Uh, do not hesitate for a second to pick Enter the Dragon, but this world is big enough for both of them, and if you've any interest at all in Kung Fu flicks, Bloodsport is worth watching at least once, if only to see how much yarn Frank Ducks can spin. Yeah. I think Bloodsport is worth watching at least once, if only to imagine the alternate universe in which Bruce Lee didn't die after Enter the Dragon, and then this <laughs> didn't this didn't happen afterwards to fill the void. Yeah. <laughs> 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 and we didn't, and we didn't have to wait till two thousand when Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon came out and made Kung Fu cool again in the mainstream. <laughs> I, know, um, I hadn't seen Bloodsport since I was a kid, so this is the first time I've seen it in a long, long time. And I, I'm not entirely sure I can get on board with the fact you should maybe watch Bloodsport once because it's not good. I mean, let's be um, clear: if you've not been involved anywhere in the world of martial arts, you've got a whole host of stuff to go through. You've got all of Bruce Lee's stuff. You've got a whole ton of Wushu stuff, the whole Chinese ghost story, and all that kind of stuff. Uh-huh. You've got all of watch Jet Li. Fong Sai Yuk. 
Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, a whole bunch of Jackie Chan to look at, and even more latterly, you've got things like Tony Jaa to get through for quite a few of his films before you get anywhere near oh. sort of trawling through you, Van Damme's back catalogue. You don't need to look at Van Damme until you're in your 60s. <laughs> yes. Uh, but I think if you, uh, for some reason, have been, if you are a sort of genre fan but haven't seen any of Van Damme stuff, then I think this is an interesting little origin story for him, at least. Um, he'll go on to do somewhat better films um, and a lot of absolute garbage which is you know probably far more forgettable than Bloodsport and probably much worse on a sliding scale when he goes like more action orientated that kind of thing but this has some interest to it I think it's, it's not I don't think we should be written off completely even though points of it are, are you know wildly below par I mean it's, there are some fun bits some of the fights are interesting you know Bolo Young is a is a worthy adversary mm. and to be honest I got more entertainment than I ought to have done watching Van Damme pretend to be blind and move around <laughs> like looking like Stephen Root and Old Brother Where Art Thou. I was trying to think of an, I was trying to think of an analogue for that and you've now I was struggling and you've absolutely nailed it. Oh, oh, seriously, there, especially there's a I posted a gif in my Twitter of this, but there was a bit where he looks exactly like Stephen Root when he's listening to the records in that film. Um, Listen, the the best I could come up with in terms of analogue to that, where he's sort of he's reaching out and he's doing that half terrified face, was the closest I could get was Paul Bearer, the Undertaker's <laughs> oh, like hype oh, man. The power of the urn. <laughs> oh, the power of the urn. And all I could do was imagine JCVD. <laughs> the power has all I could, all I could do is go the closest I can get is imagine him just going now. Oh, the power of the <laughs> But uh, I think Stephen Root's the better comparison. It was good because I have no idea what you're talking about. You've lost me entirely. Cool. So, cool. Um, I followed this up the next night with watching Kickboxer, and all I can say is Kickboxer's better in every way. So it's much better to watch that instead of Bloodsport. Well, Kickboxer's got um, uh, an old Oriental fellow throwing coconuts at JCGD, hasn't it? So Im- immediately, you know, Metacritic score of thirty, which is at least one better than than Bloodsport. There's something about Bloodsport. The I just didn't find the impacts particularly convincing in the fights, whereas no, Kickboxer no, no. feels a bit crunchier, a bit closer to something like Enter the Dragon. Mm. And there is also that genuinely kind of squeamish looking scene where he's kicking that palm tree in half. Yep. Yeah. Um, that's actually you, like and a you, really visceral start scene. to get sore as you're watching it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that, that, that's convincing. I mean, I mean I, Imagine he's clearly making contact with him, and I assume it's been a week. It's a tree that's been weakened, but still, Kickboxer is better in every way. So I think if you're considering watching Bloodsport, watch Kickboxer. I I do not like Bloodsport. I I had such clear memories of liking it, and mm-hmm. I think I must have been I don't know ten when I, the only other time yeah. I watched it, and it's not aged well for me. Okay, you and I broadly are on the same page here, Drew. Right? I am incredibly sad that I watched um, Bloodsport, not because it's a terrible film, but because it's an important film to me, I also first saw Kickboxer when I was 10, Drew. Mm-hmm. And the reason it's important to me is because it broke my 18 certificate virginity. <laughs> it's the first 18 rated certificate film I have to see that. And I have the son of my mum and dad's friends, George and June Brown, Colin Brown, to thank for that. He was 20 at the time. We were around at their house as we often did. And Colin was uh, an unbelievably cool guy who was like, I don't mind this 10-year-old kid hanging out. I like Craig. I tell you what, mum, dad, you're boring. I'm going to take, I'm going to take Craig. 
<laughs> I'm going to take Craig in my crazily oversuit Nissan at 90 miles an hour through <laughs> Grangemouth to the video shop. And we're going to rent a film on VHS. And we were in the video shop. And I remember I was at an age where I was terrified to even be seen to be looking at a 15 certificate film on the shelf because I thought my mum and dad wouldn't like it. So I remember looking at, um, what was that terrible, terrible British movie, uh, Just Ask for Diamond? Doesn't Do you remember that? All, no. Right, okay. I've never heard of that one. Look no. that up in IMDb because I remember looking at it and going, yeah, this looks like something I might enjoy, Colin. And I remember Colin turning around and going, Craig, <laughs> that. Have you seen Bloodsport? <laughs> and I was immediately entranced. And so we went back to... George and June Brown's house. And my parents were there and like, what did we get? And my mum and dad were like, oh, what have you got to watch? And Colin was like, Bloodsport, it's an 18, but don't worry about it. And before waiting for my parents' reaction, we went back upstairs <laughs> to Colin's room where he had the six-foot Samantha Fox breast-out poster on his ceiling above his bed <laughs> and, his, and his ridiculous sound system that he just played Def Leppard through constantly. And we sat and watched Bloodsport. And I was enraptured. <laughs> And I wish I'd left a memory at that because I haven't, I haven't watched Bloodsport since. It's been sullied. And I immediately felt like phoning Colin Brown up and having some sort of therapy session um, and asking him, Colin, mate, have you seen Bloodsport since we watched it back in 1989? <laughs> um, because, no, Bloodsport is not a good film. And I, I recall it being massively different than it was. There was some... There was some basic enjoyment for me to be had purely from a perspective of nostalgia. Mm-hmm. And like you say, Scott, there's a lot of entertainment to be had from Donald Gibbs' character, Jackson. <laughs> um, but apart Donald from Gibbs, that... Coincidentally, Donald Gibbs' IMDb entry, who lists him as a massive six foot four inches. <laughs> this isn't massive. <laughs> no, not by today's status. <laughs> have you watched Game of Thrones recently? <laughs> He's hardly half tall, to be honest, is he? Have you seen The Mountain? Yes. <laughs> Yeah, so watching this, I was a little bit disappointed. (laughs) Yes, if I put it that way. Listen, Jean-Claude Van Damme has made some decent movies. And yes, Kickboxer, which I think was that the film after this. Yes. Yes. The film we made after this is um, infinitely preferable. I can't remember if that was a Canon Films release as well, but keep in mind this is a Canon Films release. And I... Don't think I had remembered that. I don't think it had occurred to me. But immediately when the Canon logo came up, I remember thinking, "Oh yeah, we need to do a we need to do an episode where we talk about <sighs> key, Keystone Canon films." Um, I do like seeing that logo around again. I always forget it exists when I go back to these things. Yeah, not around anymore. Yeah. It's, it's an oh, old cool. nostalgia this, of dreadful films. And actually, a really good this one. Movie's going to have massive guns and or people kicking each other in the face. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> I actually watched two Canon films of late, which is um, Bloodsport, and then in preparation for another podcast we're going to do soon, Masters of the Universe. I'm like, oh dear, <laughs> Canon, oh, Canon, you wonderful, glorious bastards. Drew, I'm so sorry. Yeah, there were three particular John Claude Van Damme films that I was really fond of in the 80s, um, mm-hmm. two of which I've revisited and the third I haven't. So one was Bloodsport, which mm-hmm. I was massively disappointed by. Kickbox, which I think still largely holds up as a martial arts film, and the, the fighting is entertaining. That. Mm-hmm. The third, which I always remember as being the best, so I'm hoping it still will be, is AWOL. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. I don't um, think I've ever seen AWOL. AWOL, I remember liking it. Cause AWOL actually had a plot more so than the other what? ones did. Which was like more of a straight up just revenge film. Kickboxer is Rocky Four, but with kickboxing. Yeah. I mean, it's almost identical, the plot. Um, yeah. And 
Where's AWOL was about underground fighting in Los Angeles and things. It's actually quite entertaining. Um, yeah. But Bloodsport is definitely the least of the three. It's, it's, <laughs> Look, I would agree it's probably worth watching once, particularly if you like Jean-Claude Van Damme. Um, I, I, listen, this is, I, I don't even know if I would agree with that. And as much, as much <laughs> reverence as I held this in, in my memory up until <laughs> now, for, as much, as much as, I, as much as I held this film on a pedestal for 28 years, because that's how long since I last watched it, <laughs> I don't know if I'd recommend anybody watching it. As a martial arts film, it's, it's terrible. I, I, even when I think about when I watched this, which was a couple of years after it must have been first released. So, and at that point, we were way behind in the UK on like US releases and stuff. So, it yeah. couldn't have been. Oh, I was like a year. I was back yeah. when it was a good year between the exactly. Here so and this there. this this must have been like uh, it must have been out for about a year by that point when I saw it mm. on VHS here and something. And even then, at the age of ten, and this is no joke, I remember I remember at the age of ten going Forest Workers in this, <laughs> and. Um, but it's it's nothing like I remember, and it, um, from a point of view of uh, what we were talking about before with Enter the Dragon, with martial arts as dance as choreography, it's terrible. There is no moment in this film that yeah. is not ruined by slow motion where actors are reacting to hits two seconds before they land, <laughs> which in slow-mo is stretched out to like four or five seconds. Mm. <laughs> People are recoiling from from blows that are, that are to be struck in the future. It's not a good example of martial arts. The only positive I got from it this time was that actually... If you're a martial artist, uh, sorry, if you're a martial arts purist and you're interested in seeing a demonstration of a broad spectrum of martial arts, actually a huge swathe of different martial arts are represented here. The only notable one that I think was absent absent from the fighting styles demonstrated was probably like capoeira but in place of capoeira you get the crazy african guy who's set up for three seconds earlier in the film jumping up a tree who proceeds to take part in i think the two bouts that he takes place in by running about on all fours and hopping about in the mat his fighting style is that of a monkey and i have no idea what martial art that is but those are perhaps the most entertaining 15 seconds of this film. <laughs> to watch a guy sort of befuddle like these massive sort of kickboxers and Muay Thai experts by running about on all fours like a monkey and hopping around <laughs> and performing roles and jumping over them at critical moments. That is the only enjoyment I got from this movie <laughs> on this occasion. That and the fact that um, Leah Ayers is quite, quite stunning. And that's a that's a that's a very shallow thing to say, but what a wonderful lady! I think it was Dostoevsky who said, "What is there to understand about a bunch of guys who have to prove themselves by beating each other's brains out?" No, sorry, that was Lee Ayers who said that at the point at which Jackson was landed in hospital by Bolo Young. And honestly, at that point, I wondered if this movie was far more self-aware than I'd given it credit for up until this point because <laughs> that pretty much sums it up. What is there to understand about a film that revolves around guys who prove themselves by beating each other's brains out? There is very little merit to this movie. And even if you haven't watched JCV, uh, JCVD's back catalogue, you can pretty safely skip this, I'm sorry to say, and go straight to Kickboxer. Fair enough. I, I laughed quite a lot at this still, but it's, it's not really for the right reasons, so <laughs> no, I, I will happily let this one slide. Oh, sorry, the only other positive I have to say, and I, I have done great research into this, this movie, about two-thirds of the runtime of this movie, if you pick a random frame from this movie and put it through a random Prisma filter, 
two out of three times you're going to get a fantastic artwork <laughs> as a result. Um, so I'd recommend you try that. Other than that, unless you unless you're doing an an art major or something like that, don't don't worry about it. Skip it, mate. <laughs> Skip it. I'd intended to kind of discuss some other martial arts stuff, but I think we kind of hit on the other recommendations I would have. There's a whole bunch of Jackie Chan, Jet Li, Wushu, older Wushu stuff, even the more modern Wushu stuff, your Crouching Tiger, mm. Dragons that you could get to yeah, yeah, long yeah. before you hit this stuff. Hell, if you just want an entertaining John, Jean-Claude Van Damme movie, uh, there's two I would maybe three I would say to you. There is, actually, my God, JCVD's played a bigger part in my life than I thought. The first 18 certificate film that I ever saw in a cinema was Time Cop, <laughs> which is still value for money. And now I'm like, wow, what is this? Was my God, Jean Claude Van Damme and I are bound together like brothers. <laughs> um, Time Cop's a laugh. It's silly. It's worth watching for Ron Silver's performance alone. If you want to watch Jean Claude Van Damme in a, an entertaining movie, Sudden Death is a fantastic diehard ripoff, right? I can't recommend it highly enough. It is so much fun. It's unreal. Powers Booth is amazing in it. And it's self aware enough and JCD. JCVD is self-aware <laughs> enough. You have to really concentrate on those four visuals, aren't you? I really am. Is self-aware enough in it to be having fun ahead of the point at which he was recognised for having a great deal of self-awareness, which is the point at which JCVD, the film, was yes. released, which is, which is, at the time, I remember thinking it was a, the most outlandish concept that I'd ever heard for a film in my life, but it really does land yeah, I really like JCVD. The only proviso I have about recommending JCVD is to get JCVD, you have to have seen a lot of the other stuff. I'm not sure it works yeah. on its own. You, you have to have enough interest in him to understand a lot of what was going on in his yeah. personal life at the time yeah. as well, yeah. like the drug use and the divorce and all that jazz and everything. You probably ought to have um, seen even Street Fighter. Yeah. You know? <laughs> and on, and honestly, watching that film, if, if you would have to be really cynical to watch JCVD and think to yourself that he was doing it for the money. I really do honestly get the impression from watching that. It's the first time I think I've sat back. I started to get a hint of it with Sudden Death, but JCVD watching that, I really did start to understand that actually he seems like a pretty cool dude and he is absolutely capable of... He, he is self-aware enough to be able to point a finger at himself and have a laugh about himself. There is, there's almost an element to that film that makes me get quite emotional and think mm-hmm. about like, oh man, he is actually kind of, he's actually kind of bearing his soul a little bit in this film. And there's something quite poignant about it. He's clearly able to put fun of himself, which I always appreciate. Yeah. I mean, you see, there are videos of him trying to um, replicate his famous dance scene from Kickboxer. Yeah, yeah. Um, 20, 30 years after the fact. So. Mm. Yes, other JCVD films that are probably worth watching. No Hard Target. Oh, sorry, I'd forgotten. Go watch Target. Hard Target. Yeah, or actually, or the film I've come to know as once I realised that Face Off is actually terrible. The Hard Target is actually John Woo's best Hollywood movie. Mm. Yes. Yeah. Not as much to choose from in the end, really. Um, no. Hollywood never really found a, a good slot for yeah. John Woo. John, let's say actually John Woo's only good Hollywood movie. And anyone who finds themselves taking exception at that, I would say go back and watch Face Off again now. I don't know, Drew, I say that remembering you and I sitting in the cinema coming out of that saying, holy <laughs> they finally let John Woo make a John Woo movie in, with yes. Hollywood money. And actually, when I watch it now, I'm like, <laughs> I'd honestly be somewhat interested to go back and see how much Wind Talkers has held up. Mario Brothers? I really, want, <laughs> I really want to go back and watch Wind Talkers. Shall we do that? 
Yeah, I think we could probably find a podcast in something like Wind yeah. Talkers and something to compare it with. But because I remember um, sitting in the cinema going to watch something else and seeing the trailer for Wind Talkers and shitting myself because we'd obviously heard talk of guys. John Woo is making a World War Two movie with Hollywood movie uh, with <laughs> Hollywood money. At which point, everybody dropped a lung and was like, "Oh my god, this is going to be the most apocalyptic thing we've ever seen on the screen." And I remember everybody being really disappointed by it, but I almost kind of liked it at the time. That's an interesting idea, and I didn't. I was vaguely aware of the the Navajo Code Talkers at the time, mm. but not hugely familiar with them. So yeah. <laughs> I'm actually going to reflect what Scott said, but in terms of martial arts films, uh, to mm-hmm. just go away from JCBD for a moment, yeah, there are there are plenty I would go to before I came to Bloodsport. The Fong Sai Yuk and Once Upon a Time in China films oh, in yeah. particular. So the, that fight choreography the with the wire work and stuff, it, it's ludicrous, but it's deeply entertaining. It's really well done. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mostly I just wanted to mention Fong Sai Yuk and Once Upon a Time in China. Those, those will do you. So, apart from AWOL, I've just realised another JCVD film that I've not seen, which is Double Impact. Is that the one where he plays his own twin brother? Yes, that was the early 90s effort where he plays... Is that worth a look in? Have either of you seen that? I have seen it, but I honestly don't remember my feelings about it at all. It's such a long time. No, no recollection of it whatsoever. (laughs) I was going to say, I have a horrible feeling that'll be one of those where you're like, I remember it being good. And then it's like, okay, it's 27 years later now. (laughs) (laughs) I really remember what I had for breakfast yesterday. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, teenage me was a dick. <laughs> Fads on film. Fads on film. Next on our list, a post-JCVD, JCVD film with look at 2018's The Bouncer, or Lucas, as it's known in some territories. Speaking of um, bad men, I guess, that will that work? <laughs> Lucas? We don't get any better at this, do we? No, not at all. Uh, uh, it's a French name, so in fact, Luca, but... Um, Lucas, if you oh, yeah. if you prefer something, Luca or the Bouncer, as it is titled in English markets, is a French-Belgian co-production starring Jean-Claude Van Damme's Luca, a nightclub bouncer in Brussels and sole parent of an eight-year-old girl. It's clear Luca loves his daughter and that they have a good relationship. So it would be terrible if one or numerous persons were to use his daughter as a pawn to <laughs> coerce him to do things. Luca is sacked after an aggressive customer of the nightclub is injured, through no fault of Luca's, and. A police investigation is opened. Thanks to a friend, he quickly finds another security job, though he has to fight several other men to a standstill in order to obtain it. Shortly after, Luca is approached by Maxime Zeroal, Sami Boagila, a Europol detective who informs Luca that his new employer is a major counterfeiter and uses Luca's daughter as a pawn to coerce him to work for him and spy on his boss. <laughs> oh dear. They're impressed by his performance in his interview and short on manpower, the counterfeiter, Jan Decker, Sam Lewike, enlist Luca's help in the abduction of a drug manufacturer by kidnapping his daughter and using her as a pawn to coerce him. <laughs> this and further impressive performances see Luca brought further into Deckard's trust, allowing him to gain the information the police need about his operation. Then there will be blood. Uh, I watched Luca as I was quite excited by the sort of post-JCVD work. That's the film, not the actor. Uh, sadly, it's not the knockout I was hoping for, but it's still an effective and low-key little thriller. The script from Jeremy Gay and director Julien Leclerc is quite light in dialogue, letting the action, and perhaps most importantly and surprisingly, Jean-Claude Van Damme's face do much of the storytelling and character work. 
the Belgian looks weary and nigh on haunted throughout, and it's remarkably effective, creating pathos and sympathy with seemingly little effort. And the natural, unforced relationship with his daughter, Alice Versailles, adds more. Of course, this is Jean-Claude Van Damme, and Leclerc isn't going to let one of his most valuable assets go to waste. But the action scenes, while reasonably intense, are sparingly used and believable. His tryout for the job particularly stands out. JCVD may be getting older, though he's clearly still a specimen, but the fight is portrayed as awkward, dirty and brutal, and more real than many movie brawls, requiring minimal suspension of disbelief that he came out on top. (laughs) Grim JCVD plus Grim Brussels equals a reasonably enjoyable experience, uh, particularly if you're a Van Damme fan. Yes, I like this quite a lot. It's not doing anything remotely new or genre-redefining or anything like that. Uh, no. But it's uh, very efficiently, almost too efficiently told, um, uh, sort of neo-noir, I guess. Um, you know, in particular, if you, if you can get past the first 10 minutes, which requires... A, it, it, it's setting up its premise in a very time-efficient manner, shall we say, which requires a little <laughs> bit of suspense of disbelief. Um, but once you get past that, um, yeah, I, I was actually really enjoying it. Um, it's just a, quite a compelling central performance from Jean-Claude. Um, he has a chance to act a bit more than you'd normally yeah. give him credit for. And, I mean, Which I, he can do, it yeah, turns out. Yeah, I mean, I remember hearing interviews with him you know, some time back when he was probably still at the height of his cocaine fueled um, Street Fighter-esque um, era where he, you know, he, was, he was interviewed saying, yeah, I think perhaps a little bit self-deprecatingly saying that he knows what his audience comes for and it's not watching him try to do Hamlet or something but it turns out maybe maybe he's just had more practice at it since then um, but he can actually act quite well he can get across a character um, he can get across a fairly what would seem to be a quite complicated and haunted past without actually mentioning any of it you know there's a, some oblique reference to what he was doing in South Africa but there's no real detail there but he somehow gets across a full character from that uh, just from a few hints and some facial expressions and the way he comports himself and uh, yeah I agree with everybody else some nicely effective uh, fight scenes and the central story as I say not winning any awards for massive originality but it all works pretty well um, and it's certainly kept me intrigued for the 90 minutes it's a fairly short film as well isn't it it's yeah, not yeah fairly compact and uh, efficient film yeah it's it's quite enjoyable if you've any interest in the sort of thrillers it's certainly much more effective than the um what was the one we spoke about a little while back with uh, Jackie Chan the one that was that was briefly oh, called the Chinaman the foreigner the foreigner that's the one yeah um so it's i guess similar sort of patterned uh, as that one but i think this one's a bit more effective it's a, a, a bit of a, a bit of a better story and a bit of a better uh, central through line with it so yes yeah i'd recommend no, it no problematic politics either exactly yes <laughs> like that I had with whatever they were doing with Pierce Brosnan's character and that and the connection <laughs> with the IRA and yeah. not that they ever mentioned that I don't believe but uh, yeah well, uh, I'm sort of hoping to be blown away but was, if you look back sort of early to mid 80s Jean-Claude Van Damme he wasn't greatly acting uh, no maybe part of that's the type of films he was in but when you see like I mean that We've mentioned it before, and quite recently too, but the absolutely ludicrous moments of him trying to pretend he's blind in the fight <laughs> blood sport. Yes. Uh, but, I mean, I've remarked before, and as people know that, acting, very much one of those things you can get better with is with age. Yes. Um, and I think he's an absolute prime example of it. Yes, yes. Um, 
And there's just sort of a, a weariness to him in this film mm-hmm. um, that just works really well with the character. So it's it's good. It's so we surely I think maybe see hints here and there. Certainly not in Street Fighter, um, and probably not in his prime cocaine <laughs> days. But yes. Most then, certainly from JCVD onwards, that we bit self deprecation, which is nice. Yes, uh, but also just yeah, he's he's added. Well, he's clearly still got like, physical ability. He's not as immediately imposing as a as a sliced loan or something because mm. um, he's not built like that. I think, but there's still like believable strength and skill in his fighting. Added to that, um, he's gained some acting ability um, and he makes for a really quite compelling guy to watch. Yes, yes. Um, and you mentioned that people don't come for Hamlet. Well, if uh, Arnie can play Hamlet, <laughs> as he quite clearly did in the last action hero, very convincingly, the yes. JCVD can. <laughs> the only thing I'm going to say about this film, um, before we move on, Scott, another thing is that I, because you mentioned too about the sort of very efficient setup and the fact that this is, is a, it bombs along quite quickly too. Yeah, I very much encourage anyone who's interested in seeing this, and if you're a JCPD fan, that should be you. Um, it's, find the French cut of this because, well, while I originally started trying to find the French cut because the English release is instead of being subtitled dubbed. Um, which I have a visceral hatred of. Mm. The uh, English cut is eight minutes shorter than the French and Belgian cut. And I'm wondering, <laughs> how on earth yes. did find eight minutes to take <laughs> out? Yeah. Yeah, there's not an awful lot of fat in this film. Uh-huh. No. It's a 1-hour, 34-minute film that really bombs along quickly. Um, Scott mentioned, um, I guess it's set up done very, very swiftly. Um, <laughs> and what on earth did they manage to um, remove from this? Yes. <laughs> so, yeah, um, which makes me think it must surely be a worse cut. You would, um, yeah, yeah. But, yeah, so if you can, if you're interested in this, seek out the French cut, which, um, although weirdly, I got, the, I got hold of the French cut and it's got all the French titles of the director and stuff but then the, the title still in English The Bouncer which is weird because the French don't like to use English if they can avoid it yeah yeah um, that was odd but uh, <laughs> apropos of nothing but yes uh, seek out the French cut which you'll probably find under the name Luca rather than The Bouncer and yeah hopefully enjoy it if you like JCBD indeed Fads on film Fads on film a pairing of legends next, with a look at the John Woo-directed joint, Hard Target. So we make a start then with uh, the classic Jean-Claude Van Damme, John Woo, Hard Target. Yes, uh, as Scott says, our first film is Hard Target. Kind of an updated take on 1932's The Most Dangerous Game, <laughs> in which rich men pay for the privilege of hunting and killing a human being. The hunts in this film take place in New Orleans, where former soldiers in particular are recruited amongst the city's homeless population and offered $10,000 if they make it 10 miles across the city to the river. As they're only given a five-minute head start, though, and they're being chased by many people <laughs> in cars, on motorbikes and with powerful weapons, this is pretty obviously never going to happen. <laughs> Almost like there's some commentary here but things being loaded against the people. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe that's just luck point we may come to <laughs> the first victim you see is Douglas Binder the screenwriter Chuck Farrer 
a victim who, against the express orders of Lance Henriksen's Emile Fouchon, the man behind the hunt, has a family who will miss him. That family is Yancey Butler's Nat, who has come to the city seeking her father after his letters to her suddenly stopped. Her search brings her to some of the less salubrious neighbourhoods of the Big Easy, where she is saved from robbery and assault by Jean-Claude Van Damme's Chance Boudreau. Introductions made, Nat enlists Chance as a guide and bodyguard as she tries to trace her father, a search which is quickly ended when a police officer magically manages to find the visitor to the city in the middle of the city and to tell her that her father's body has been found. <laughs> Cursory investigation by Boudreau uncovers evidence of his murder, and the single non-striking police officer left in the city, <laughs> Casey Lemons, is convinced to begin an investigation. Meanwhile, Fouchon's hunt finds another victim, though the heat of the investigation suggests to him it's time to wrap things up in New Orleans and move to pastures new. Before he does so, though, he decides that Boudreau must die and drives him deep into the bayou where lives his uncle Duvet, an old Cajun played utterly convincingly, mind you, (laughs) utterly convincingly by Wilford Brimley. And he wants to talk to you about diabetes. (laughs) I assume, like me, you only know about that from Red Letter Media. Yes, yes. (laughs) Also, Wilford Brimley, despite looking like 100 years old for the last 50 years, still not dead. (laughs) Well done, Wilford. This all sets the scene for a finale in which Fouchon somehow convinces a bunch of rich men to pay him handsomely to do his dirty work for him, (laughs) and JCBD kicks all of their arses. This, though, despite the film taking pains in the early scenes to point out the care Lance Henriksen's organisation takes to avoid attention, including creating alibis for the people involved in the hunt, recruiting the top city pathologist and burning bodies to hide evidence of murder. But, as I say, despite that, very soon Arnold Vosloo and the other goons are killing people in the middle of crowded streets, murdering police officers with shotguns in broad daylight and trying to shoot people from motorbikes all while making no attempt to hide their identity. No, no, but it's perfectly all right, though, because the police are on strike. So that's a fig leaf for it. Whether this is a commentary on the impunity with which the rich can commit crimes in society or screenwriting, I'll let you decide for yourself. (laughs) Oh, did I mention that the screenwriter, Chuck Farrer, is responsible for the jackal? (laughs) Not that I wish to sway your uh, decision-making there at all. There is a strong argument to be made that John Woo's first Hollywood film is his best Hollywood film. But, well, damning with faint praise and all that. Hard Target has slow motion, Beretta handguns, motion of reduced speed, birds, motion at a lesser speed than normal, stylized choreographed action and gunplay, action that is displayed at slower than typical speed, and motion that is not quick. So it's definitely a John Woo film. Yes. By this point, JCVD had come on in leaps and bounds as an actor, especially compared to the likes of Bloodsport just five years earlier, and despite an interesting hairstyle (laughs) I'm pretty certain he hadn't used before or since, he's very watchable, (laughs) and his trademark kicking people in a face shtick really doesn't get old. (laughs) Arnold Vosloo is dependably villainous, but... Lance Henriksen is chewing the scenery, presumably prompted by the mid-film flip where his cool businessman becomes a butt-hurt angry man because plot, (laughs) and it's not really his forte. It's hard to judge Yancey Butler because she's mostly just asked for wide-eyed reaction shots, usually in slow motion, and she wide-eyed reactions her way right through them. (laughs) 
Wilfred Brimley is not even a tiny bit convincing as a Cajun, but, well, it's plenty entertaining because he's Wilfred Brimley trying to be a Cajun. <laughs> Spider-Man 1 and 2 and the Hurt Locker editor, Bob Murawski, keeps the action movie along reasonably well, despite the frankly comical number of slow-motion shots, though the action in general does feel a little stayed by today's standards. It's definitely a product of its time. Setting aside Wind Talkers, which I really would like to revisit sometime but can no longer speak to with authority, Hard Target Pubble is John Woo's best Hollywood film. It's also crap. Just entertaining crap. <laughs> Could have used a little more slow motion, though, I thought. Yeah, common criticism with John Woo films, that just not enough slow motion. Um, I really, really enjoyed watching Hard Target again. Hadn't seen it in years. And um, yeah, I'm sure we had a conversation a while back about, much as we loved Face Off at the time, going back to it these days, it seems kind of rubbish. <laughs> so time has been much less kind to that than I think it has been to Hard Target, which, although yes, very much a product of its time, is a, a time I quite liked <laughs> in terms of how action films are made and, and looked. Yeah, it's absolutely ludicrous in terms of plot. I would not be taking it seriously, and uh, I think I think you're being quite generous trying to ascribe any kind of commentary to it, uh, not just because of its inherent actions. I was and being plans. entirely facetious Scott, yes. please don't concern yes. yourself about that. Yes, and there's a lot of scenery, scenery chewing going on I'd, I'd forgotten quite how quotable a lot of, well essentially everything that Arnold Vosloo does in it. Rendell, like, Rendell, Rendell, Rendell. I'm not sure allowed to say that anymore but it's still very very funny, I think I, I'm sure at some point that was one of my ringtones um, <laughs> that whole you want to leave without saying goodbye <laughs> Lots of really fun action sequences in it, and I'm not sure I've seen a more... <laughs> in terms of his sort of supposed to be taking them seriously roles, I think Jean-Claude Van Damme's perhaps one of his most sympathetic and better turns uh, in this compared to anything else. He, he seems to have been given a character, which he doesn't normally get. He's normally <laughs> just Jean-Claude Van Damme, man, what does the kicks and that. And in this one, he's at least been given, like, here's a character that you can have and try and act for a bit and see how that goes. And he doesn't, makes a pretty good fist of it. I, I quite like him in this. He's very likable. Um, yeah, um, <laughs> Well, if you consider that Frank Ducks was supposed to have had a character, you know, yes. everybody in that film is made of wood. Yes. Seriously. There's a wee bit of the backstory of, like, he was also on the streets at some point and stuff. And, like, there's not a lot of character, but he has some. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I think what I liked most coming back to it was that it acts as a sort of a greatest hits of John Woo in his heroic bloodshed um, <laughs> phase because whether it's in this incarnation of the podcast or the last we've had plenty of conversations about how Hollywood just could not find anything for John Woo to do meaningfully uh, I suppose we'll sort of be last thing when he spoke about Mission Impossible 2 they, they just never got a handle on what he could do and of course after that he kind of went back to um, China and Hong Kong started producing bigger epic films like um, Red Cliffs which are yeah, exactly, you know, much yeah. Yeah, much more interesting in sort of a different phase, but all this heroic bloodshed things, he never quite got to do anything that was of that quality at all in the West. Now, this isn't as good by a long chalk as anything like Hard Boiled or The Killer or these other ones, but it has sort of little snippets of all the kind of best elements and the stylistic flourishes that we would use in that and puts them in a Western context probably the only successful time uh, this is the only one that I think where it's, it's really kind of worked and it kind of it, it's recognisably a John Woo film in a way that a lot of the other ones kind of really aren't when you look at them and 
that gives it a bit of charm. Um, perhaps it's only because I'm kind of nostalgically grafting on elements from other better films, but I still think it kind of works. Um, I still think this would stand by itself as being a, a really entertaining little um, action uh, outing, and I have a lot of respect for it, a lot of love for it, and I would certainly recommend anyone with a, a passing interest in, in this sort of thing, either martial arts or uh, the heroic bloodshed shooty bangs. I mean, if you if you liked something like John Wick, uh, any of those trilogy, then and you haven't seen um, any of Wu's earlier stuff, then it's an absolute goldmine to go back and uh, run through if you've somehow um, not partaken of that in your cinematic journey thus, thus far. I would certainly recommend travelling down that road. And of that, while Hard Target is not the best John Wu film, by, as I say, by a long shot, it's certainly easily his most wooish Western film and <laughs> worth looking at in, in that regard. I am not entirely convinced that I had seen this before I watched it. Perhaps just last year, right? I think I'd seen enough bits of it, but I was not convinced that I had actually seen it. Although if I had, it was twenty five years ago, right? Yeah, you, it's perhaps one of those films you might have thought you've seen just because me and Craig have been going. He was helping her look for her daddy all the time and doing yeah, all the like, terrible accents. <laughs> that's it. I've, been, I've spent twenty five years listening to Craig every so often going Randall, Randall, Randall. <laughs> And I think it was past my entertainment last time. This time when I watched it, I was acutely aware of it just being a bad film. <laughs> I was also very much aware that despite that, I was still enjoying it. So as I said, it really is crap, entertaining crap. Um, yes. And I think the saddest thing is, though, I looked at the John Woo's filmography and IMDb before beginning this tonight. And I, this followed hard-boiled yeah. This is a film yeah. right after Hardboiled, his best film, and this is, oh, no, well, I mean, Redcliffe, maybe, because it's such a different film, you probably can't compare it yeah. to Hardboiled, but, like, that's, that's the progression of his career, <laughs> ugh, yikes, um, yeah, I see what you mean, it's like, I've been, like, it's like a sampler plate of John Woo almost, <laughs> yes, the point it almost feels like it's a, it's like a, a demo reel, a sizzle reel, yeah. um, or like a checklist activity, because it's like, right, birds, okay, berettas, slow motion, slow motion, slow motion, slow motion. Yes, standing, uh, your two main bad guys standing on opposite sides of a wall having a conversation about yeah. the reload, uh, yeah. diving backwards over the table while shooting those berettas, that kind of thing, yes. Burying each other, um, throwing people a gun in the middle yeah. of combat and things. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, it does feel like it's almost like a box ticking exercise. Um, but there's enough in there to make it enjoyable I guess it's not good I would argue I would say it's good but crap can be enjoyable too like it's like junk food right you know if you ate a lot of that you're not going to have a good time but mm. it's entirely fine every once in a while and a film like that like this well, it's, just, it's fine yeah. in that regard you know it's entertaining and there are there are skilled bits in it but Jean-Claude Van Damme jumping up and kicking people in the face again never mm. loses his charm yes <laughs> and I would be much, much more critical of Wilford Brimley in another film if he tried this, but it's it's just so daft anyway. Yeah. That they're just with impunity blowing people away in the middle of the street when they'd started to start off saying well they had to keep it secret and then well, of course, deep in the middle of the bayou there's a storage um, facility for Mardi Gras um floats. Well, why yeah. wouldn't there be why wouldn't that be in the middle of the forest? Yeah. Okay. Um it's like, I don't care. I just wanted an interesting looking location to blow up at the end. So. Yeah. 
entertaining schlock, basically. It's just... Yes, but I'm a, I'm a huge schlock fan. So. <laughs> Sometimes has to catch me in the right mood, but there's quite a good chance of JCV dude in it. Yeah. Um, so that, that's always good. Uh, but yes, far from brilliant. Um, and it's sad, really, that this is the pinnacle of John Woo in Hollywood. Yes, um, um, yeah, he's, he's had bigger budgets and uh, never been able to really do much with them. Uh, <laughs> It's not a paycheck, so it's got that exactly. Yeah, exactly what I was thinking of. Yeah. Fads on film. Fads on film. What's better than one John Claude? Two, of course. As we take a look at Double Impact next. As decisive and abdominal observed on DJ format's um, three feet deep, Scott. In a pose similar to Jean-Claude's superimposed in the posters, both men playing his own twin brother in the blood. <laughs> Whatever that actually means. But it's a reference to Double Impact. Yes. And there we go. I have no idea what my point is, but I often have no point as part of my anti-charm. <laughs> right, uh, yeah, Double Impact, in which this 1991 joint uh, reunites Jean-Claude Van Damme, the noted kick-punch man, and Sheldon Lettich, the writer and director of previous JCVD joints like uh, Bloodsport and Lionheart, and a perhaps surprising number of subsequent ones in the wilderness of era of JCVD's career. Uh, let's see if diminishing returns set in early. Here, after the opening of the Victoria Harbour Tunnel in Hong Kong, the part owner of the construction firm is followed home and killed by a triad ambush alongside his wife. However, their maid is able to escape with one of the tiny twins, Alex, leaving the other to be raised in a Hong Kong orphanage run by French nuns. The other, Chad, is whisked to America by bodyguard Frank Avery, Geoffrey Lewis, who raises him to be, ironically enough, something not too dissimilar to the Chads the modern day incels are all angsty about. Both twins are, of course, played by JCVD. As adults, not babies. That would be weird. That sounds like an Adam Sandler film, doesn't it? <laughs> yes. Here things come to a head 20-odd years later when Frank has finally tracked down Alex, who appears to be running a mahjong parlour and small-time smuggling outfit in Hong Kong, and comes clean to Chad about their tragic family history and their now shared need for vengeance. Off they pop to HK, where the two brothers don't initially take to each other, and some understandable confusion with Alex's girlfriend, Halona Shaw's Daniel Wilde, doesn't help. This tension will simmer throughout as the B plot to the affair. Well, I say B plot. We'll get to that. The main order of business is, of course, revenge against the powerful triad-backed businessman slash drug baron, Alan Scarf's Nigel Griffiths. Screenwriting note. Never name your villain Nigel. His... Also his pervy bodyguard, Corian Everson's Cara, and also them their triad goons. Main threat, of course, being the imposing Bolo Young's moon. And I don't think I'm being too unfair to say there's not a great deal more to the plot than that. Basically alternating action sequences and some scenes of fratricidal bickering before settling their differences for the final assault on, of all things, a cargo ship. So, there's not really an A plot and a B plot here, it's all C plot. Perfunctory at best, to the point that even if we are the type to excuse this on genre grounds, this still isn't going to be a classic. But those action sequences, I have to say, I'm quite fond of. It's not genre-defining or anything, but it's solidly handled, and JCVD knows how to kick people. And there's quite a few stylish captures of said kicking. There's a touch more gunplay in here than the previously mentioned JCVD Lethage team-ups, and fittingly enough, given the location, it seems he's borrowed heavily from the John Woo heroic bloodshed style of pistols akimbo, diving and rolling. It's not a patch for a master, of course, but it's all perfectly serviceable. The technology of the time didn't allow for an awful lot of technical trickery and the composite shots of the two JCVDs used here is uh, well has possibly suffered somewhat in the transition to HD as the remaster makes them look 
quite bad. Uh, but on the positive side, the said lack of technical trickery has made for much more convincing action scenes, so that's nice. More on that in our next film. As for the whole portraying two different characters thing, while no one's putting him forward for an Oscar, JCBD's doing what he needs to do here. Alex lets him explore a somewhat more villainous, or at least morally fixable character than we'd seen from him previously, and his initially somewhat goofy Chad persona is also rather more animated than we'd seen from him. Not that he's a revelation, Alex Drunken's throws of angst borders on the laughable, uh, but he does enough to show here that he's a bit more flexible as an actor, albeit still not as flexible as his body. Double Impact is very dated, of course, and while they just don't make action movies like this these days, they did, however, make a metric ton of them back in the late 80s to the early 90s. And while I enjoyed this quite a bit, it's still right in the middle of a very crowded pack. That makes it a little difficult to recommend pulling this film, in particular, out of the vault, as opposed to, say, the John Woo or Bruce Lee joints that this liberally steals from. But if you did happen across it uh, on a trip through television land, I'd certainly not advise against watching it. Drew, what do you make of this one then? I, I'm trying to remember if I'd even seen this before. I think so, but it's been a while. Uh, it feels very 80s, doesn't it? Yes. It's a 1991 film, but it, it really feels like an 80s film. Yeah, it's the last gasp of that uh, era of action films, really, isn't it? What stands out here is, I mean, we've mentioned that a couple of times before, I've kind of touched this general area, that even from like Bloodsport, so 86 Bloodsport? Sounds about right, yeah. yeah. Um, even just in the few years from now, it, JCVD, well, he's not a great actor. Although we certainly become much more watchable a bit later on, and by the mm-hmm. time of JCVD, the f- um, that's the film, not the man. It's just, he's loosened up so much yeah. from just Bloodsport just a few years earlier, and he's clearly having a lot of fun here. Yeah. The, the slightly, I guess, slightly effeminate. Which one's the one in LA? Is that? That's Chad. Chad. Um, <laughs> Yes. I, don't, I must have not been paying full attention to start the film because for ages I was trying to work out which one of them's called Frank oh wait he's the man with the moustache right really uh, yeah Chad slightly fair but like with his you know, pink polo shirt and his very tight shorts but then making fun of him wearing his silk underwear and stuff and he's yeah. you know, there's just a wee bit of kind of self-deprecation in there and he's he's having fun with it he's clearly he's very stiff in blood sport yeah Whereas he's loosened up a lot here, he's he can deliver a funny line, you know. He's he's quite decent. Mm-hmm. Uh, that makes a big difference. It's, it's not a great film, but it's still entertaining enough. And honestly, for the year and the budget, the special effects aren't that bad. I've seen worse. Mm. Again, maybe we'll come to some of those. But yeah. <laughs> it's just not the strongest plot, which is a bit of a problem. Here. The, the villain's terrible, and. The film has Bolo Young and he's barely in it. It's yeah. a bit of a waste of Bolo Young. Yes. I think they had him for like two days or something. <laughs> Just need to get all that yeah. done. Yeah. Although, what I am impressed by is, is really um, high-tech, very forward-looking light technology, or light switch technology in 1991. <laughs> because there's a point where Bolo Young kicks Jean-Claude Van Damme in the chest when they're fighting in the boiler room in the ship at the end or the cargo area. Mm. And it turns the lights on really, really high. Yeah. <laughs> so it's gloomy, gloomy, gloomy. Kicks John Claude Van Damme in the chest, floodlit. <laughs> yeah. Which is a curious place to keep your remote control for the lights. <laughs> okay. So I'm just trying lots of different technologies in the early 90s. <laughs> it's definitely not one of John Claude Van Damme's more interesting films. Well, I mean, I guess it was interesting, maybe not one of his better ones, but it really does show. 
progress. I think that's perhaps the most interesting thing. If you're interested in his work at all, you really do see him improving as he goes along. As I say, loosening up, being an actor more than, or at the very least an action star, more than simply kicky man, which is basically how he starts off um, and he likes the blood sport. What it's like, he's a man who kicks and probably best that he sticks to kicks and doesn't speak. And yet I'm honestly surprised he ever went on. Like you wouldn't have thought that. I think. Yeah, a few years earlier, you'd have thought that he would be given roles where he was not asked to speak a lot. Yeah, yeah, he's certainly come as you mentioned. He's he's, he's done quite a long way uh, from his initial ones, and he's he, yeah, he displays a lot more charisma now than he did, and that helps this film. Uh, it's a perfectly fine film. I probably enjoyed it more than I should. Um, mm. it's, a, it's a nice cheesy slice of action, but it's. Yeah, I don't like to fall back on that, but I think it's one of these ones that's probably best for genre fans only. Um, if, you, if you're not kind of already uh, got some sort of affinity for Jean-Claude or this kind of era of action films, then perhaps there's not an awful lot to recommend to it other than that. But um, but I thought I had a perfectly fun time watching it. So Yeah, it's not a classic of the genre by any means, but if you're, if you're on like a JCVD trip and you come across that, you're probably going to be particularly disappointed. Yeah, it's just that. Well, as I said before, Jean Claude Van Damme roundhouse kicking people in the face is not something that will ever lose its charm. No, <laughs> it's something it should be in most um, houses of parliament or the equivalent. Of just... <laughs> Sorry, I've got nothing to say to that. I'm just <laughs> daydreaming about Boris Johnson being roundhouse kicked in the face, and not... he'd be the perfect target. His hair would go all floppy. It'd be like, it'd be a really good slow motion. But, uh... Better watch out. Don't want to get arrested by the cops. Uh-huh. Fads on film. Fads on film. Now, a while back, we could not resist putting together a full episode of JCVD Goodness, so here's our take on Sudden Death, the Bonkers double team, and a knockoff. But, Drew, wait a minute. What is that film we're talking about? Um, that film um, starring the person who's apparently become our spirit animal. Yes. Um, well, it's die hard in a nice hockey stadium. Bingo. Are we done? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> no, sudden, but, but, but sudden nineteen ninety five sudden death. Are you talking yeah. about Drew? Yeah. But seriously, Craig, die hard in a nice hockey stadium. Yeah, is that reductive? No, nope. well, certainly is. Is it inaccurate? Certainly not. (laughs) (laughs) Police Academy 3 and Operation Dumble Drop scribe Gene Quintano's script gives a story credit to the wife of the then owner of the Pittsburgh Penguins, but it really ought to be giving it to Roderick Thorpe. A terrorist, who turns out to be actually a thief, has taken over a building and rigged it with explosives. He is well prepared, well armed and ruthless, and knows how to deal with the feds when they turn up. Set against him is one single man, a member of the emergency services, who is running around the building trying to gather information and gradually reduce the number of personnel commanded by the leader. There is a geeky guy wearing glasses watching everything on monitors. A member of the hero's family becomes endangered, and our hero even abseils from the roof of a tall building. Now, I just described both Sudden Death and Die Hard, and I didn't have to fudge a single thing to fit. But for all that Peter Hyams' 1995 film is a diehard knockoff, and it really is, for crying out loud, our French Canadian hero's surname is McCord. <laughs> Jeebus. <laughs> French Canadian? That's not an attempt to explain away any accents or anything, is it, Drew? 
No, put such thoughts on your mind, Craig. You cynic, you. <laughs> so tell me about this, McLe- yes. uh, Sorry, McCord. Yes. <laughs> Despite all these similarities, Die Hard, uh, it's also probably the best Die Hard knockoff I've seen. Yeah, and I really quite enjoyed my time with it. And I honestly, I didn't write anything more about a plot recap because it's Die Hard in a hockey stadium. <laughs> there is nothing, you know exactly how that's going to go. Uh, um, the sudden death, though, does manage to add a few moments of originality uh, through means of some inventive deaths. Among them, death by dishwasher and <laughs> death by ham bone. <laughs> <laughs> As well as having a hero take part in the seventh game of the Stanley Cup, the spectators of which are the unwitting hostages here. It's also got one of the more memorable helicopter crashes you're likely to see. And, well, Craig, how often do you see a penguin get beaten up? Oh, about once a decade at best. He's not Bruce Willis, but JCBD is in good form here. Powers Booth is a fun villain, and even the young child isn't irritating. It's well produced, entertaining, and even managed to surprise me with a character revelation. Uh, and I recommend you check it out now before Netflix's planned comedy remake ruins it for you. What? Yes, I had discovered this this evening. Um, Netflix, well, it's presumably off the cards now because it was meant to film June this year, but right. Netflix are planning a comedy remake of it called Welcome to Sudden Death. Whoa! Yeah. How do you do a comedy remake of a terrorist sort of siege action movie? With all the murder that this has, um, I'm hoping you don't. But Oh, wow. Right. Okay. Sorry. That's caught me off guard slightly. Um, right. I'm really glad you enjoyed this then because you hadn't seen this up until now, had you? I had not, no. No. And I last watched it quite a while ago, but I say quite a while ago. It's probably three, four years ago now. I had a sudden... A recollection of having really enjoyed it and I think I'd been speaking to someone about Die Hard knockoffs and you know Die Hard on an X or in, yeah. an, in a Y um, and I had suggested uh, Sudden Death to them and having done that I thought oh wait a minute have I made a terrible mistake there <laughs> because it's been sort of you know a, an intervening 20 years and yeah, yeah, I, yeah it. it's, it, I mean it is what it is and nobody in this movie is under any illusions that are creating great art but I was I was actually really pleased to revisit it um, it was a couple of months ago now so I've not watched it in the last week or anything but I revisited it a couple of months ago just on the spur because I had a notion that it might crop up in conversation at least anyway and it is like uh, really enjoyable and it's fairly well produced and it's uh, in terms of Van Damme performances it's I mean you know for given values of performance when it comes to Jean-Claude Van Damme it's definitely up there he's he's really um He's really he's, engaging. He's charismatic, and, absolutely. Yeah, he's very yeah, likable in the role. He really is, and he's I actually feels quite ease. Yeah, absolutely ease, and he's actually quite convincing as a caring father type. And he's not. Um, there would be the fear that um, you know you would lose some of the urgency of that you would have in Die Hard from having such a vulnerable lead, um, and that it would be quite unbelievable that you know high kicking John Claude Van Damme would you know somehow feel utterly you know invincible and undermine the whole sort of sense of urgency and danger in this movie. But that that somehow doesn't happen, despite the fact he's clearly quite competent at kicking people in the head yes um, there is still a real sense of jeopardy about it which is the crucial thing for a movie like this and i don't have a great deal to add to what you said because i'm guessing a lot of people will probably have seen this because it was one of his more high profile releases i mean the guy's career has only contained so many 
um, you know, theatrically released projects. There was a huge, there was a huge sway that started now towards the end of his career that have been sort of very much straight to straight to video. Mm-hmm. But there was a period there in the mid to late nineties where he had a run of five or six films that sort of had wide theatrical release. And this is definitely up there. Um, Some of the effects work now, especially in the final sequence, is showing itself to be a little bit ropey, especially with sort of high-def transfers now being pretty unforgiving in terms of, um, you know, anything other than a pristine matte or optical effect these days. But um, if you can, if you can, I was going to say, if you can excuse the rough edges, it's more part of its charm in some respects. Um, It is still just a pretty good romp. And yeah, you know the story already, um, but you've probably guessed that before you sit down to watch it. And it's kind of, kind of comfort food and one of his best movies, really. Yeah, I would say, I mean, it's, I mean, the second half of the film becomes a little more generic. Yeah. Uh, the first half I particularly enjoyed though, because Powers Booth's character is so kind of, yeah. Um, he's just got this great swagger and the, the actual, the way the card is written with him, all his preparation and things. I really appreciate that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. So it's really quite satisfying. Yeah. That, like everything's so well thought out. Um, and I say the second half, a bit more generic, but it still has quite a bit of Jean-Claude Van Damme kicking people. So yeah. that's good. I think, I think Powers Booth does, uh, it's not that he's not guilty of chewing the scenery to some extent, but I think the risk with this would have been to have had a villain that was quite as reserved as Rickman's performance in Die Hard. I think you kind of had to lean into the fact of knowing that this was a knockoff, a little lead into a, a later uh, a later conversation there. Um, I think you had to lean into the fact, and the film is self-aware enough to know that actually if we're going to have this villain, let's, let's have Powers Booth camp it up just enough. And he does sort of still come in just under the radar as believable, um, but sort of campy enough to make it work in the context of the movie as a whole, if that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, he's clearly no Alan Rickman. And and his hands Gruber, because he's so composed at the start, like when he loses his um, rag at the end, that makes it more meaningful. Yeah. Um, But if you don't get a good enough actor, you try to do that reserve thing, it's going to end up completely milk toast. And and conversely, Rickman in this movie would have been a disaster because he would have been... He would have almost been too good. You would have yeah. sensed that he was in a different was, movie. Yeah. There was Powers Booth. He's like, you can see there's like that. There's like a wee glint in his eye. He's like, he's having fun. But it works. The character's written to the, the character's kind of having fun with this, even though it's yeah. important to him. Um, and I think he plays it just the right side of, of that. He, he knows what sort of film he's in, but, you know, still professional. Yeah. Um, giving it just the right kind of tone that works with the film without it being, as you say, tuning the scenery and over the top. Mm. Or kind of taking it too seriously and just like not being in any way interesting. Yeah. This is that kind of mid-90s film that could have aged incredibly badly by now. But actually, if you put it up against something like... Um, did we not discuss the likes of Face Off recently? Did we not talk about that in a recent podcast and how we thought it was the absolute bee's knees at the time? And I remember you and I coming out of the cinema really excited about the fact that John Woo had translated so well to Hollywood, finally. And actually, when you watch that now, I that is a bad movie. <laughs> I have the feeling we've said almost exactly this same thing on the podcast multiple times now. Yeah. 
yeah. it also comes up in our just regular off-air conversations. So yeah. very possibly the, could. This, this feels like the sort of product of its time that it could have aged incredibly badly. So I was actually really pleasantly surprised to see that it's still just incredibly yeah. competent and still just sort of engaging and enjoyable enough to be worthwhile to watch. Yeah, it's just it's a thoroughly solid, thoroughly enjoyable action film. Yeah, um, well produced um, and actually well performed by everybody, including old, uh, including our mascot. Yeah, and it's it's quite nice to see too that there aren't any characters here doing things that don't make any sense. Yeah, we are perhaps the, the one bit where his son suddenly becomes a wee get um, <laughs> having defended his father for being uh, not a fireman anymore. But um, the other than that, like nobody's doing anything completely stupid or that makes no sense at all. It's yeah. all reasonable. Yeah. Because the plot of this is inherently ridiculous, but it somehow comes across as entirely sort of acceptable. Um, but yes, no, I, I would suggest that even if you if you haven't seen this movie for some reason, give it a give it a watch. Give yeah. it a watch. I just wish I could find the episode of. Um, I don't think it'll be available anymore whatsoever anywhere. But there is an episode of Greg Proop's podcast, uh, the smartest man in the world, um, from about five or six years ago that sort of first spurred my recollections about this movie, where he opens with a bit of a um, a bit of a talk about how much he enjoys sudden death. <laughs> And I have. I'm not going to attempt to recreate it here, but he has a he has a bit that he does around around sudden death, which still makes me laugh now to think about it. Um, and I wish I'd kept that episode. But there you go. That's quite by the by. Um, if we want to talk about believable plots, so Drew, I think we're about to reach the absolute Mount Kilimanjaro of grounded, um, sort of very believable action plots. When I uh, brief everybody on double team. <laughs> yes. Um though this um is my fault. Right. Because Explain yourself. Well, because you know we've been doing a few JCVD films. Mm. Not the film's not my fault, us covering it. I'm not taking responsibility for that. But no. uh, yes, we've been doing a couple of JCD films of late and uh I wanted to then shoehorn this in somewhere because mm-hmm. the fact that it was a Jean-Claude Van Damme film co-starring Dennis Rodman really amused me. Yeah. Um, it didn't fit into the last one because Scott watched it and I hadn't got around to it yet. Mm. Um, and so maybe that's a show of solidarity more than anything else. And the fact that Scott told us um, about the setup for the finale. Yeah. Uh, but, well, clearly we're doing that. It's awesome, but also it's also my fault for bringing it up in the first place when we probably never would have talked about it. So sorry. It's important for me to say at this point, Drew, that I forgive you. So, <laughs> without further ado, hello, peeps. Stavros here. I've got beef. What? So it's not just me that had that um, voice thread all through the film. <laughs> I got beef with the Belgian in it. The f- <laughs> the following may or may not be a recounting of the plot of 1997's seminal buddy caper double team because I started watching it in bed the other night and I can't be entirely sure I didn't immediately fall asleep and dream this shit. Um, 
I think what happens is this. Uh, we cold open with Jack Quinn, uh, Jean-Claude Van Damme, some sort of elite CIA operative rescuing nuclear materials from some asshole in some corner of Eastern Europe. I get the impression that Quinn's colleagues don't like him very much because as he launches his impromptu mission, they start running up and down corridors, excitedly proclaiming that if he pulls this off, he retires. But that's by the by, because right now, we just need to understand that Jack Quinn is nobody's fool, and if you were to hand him some sort of procedural tome, a, a rule book, if you will, he would probably look at it in disgust before killing you with the extra foot he has hidden on the sole of his kicking foot. The scene we set now... Um, Sorry, the scene set. We now head off to a fairground where Quinn is attempting to ambush Stavros. <laughs> Mickey Rock. The first time someone said Stavros in this, I, 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 honestly, I did like a, the whatever. The, <laughs> can you do a double take to audio? Because I think I was kind of, I wasn't even looking at the screen at the time, and I just sort of went, did he say Stavros? Is the bad guy in this called Stavros? Um, <laughs> anyway, uh, it's Quinn's attempting to ambush Stavros. Uh, Mickey Rourke, of course, a very naughty terrorist. There's a tiger in a cage, and when it all goes to Pete Tong and the whole fairground blows up, except for the tiger. We are disappointed that nobody has to fight the tiger, but don't worry about the tiger. Hold that tiger thought. Stavros gets away, and Quinn, who gets all exploded and stuff, but is okay because he's significantly more excellent than you, wakes up in the colony, an island prison for former operatives whose expertise in situational analysis is sold to international clients. I think I got that right. I don't know. Apparently the residents of the colony are, quote, too valuable to kill and too dangerous to set free, but they're all over 60, so that sounds like nonsense. Nobody can escape the colony, but that's okay, because remember, Jack Quinn is not nobody. But that joke doesn't work, because I implied that if you were nobody, you would be the one who could escape. Anyway, Jack Quinn does escape because he's significantly more excellent than you. And, crucially, he isn't afraid of underwater lasers that cause people to explode for some reason. Hold that tiger thought now. Now, Quinn is out to settle the score with Stavros, but wait, his wife, who thinks he's dead, is a sculptor, and there's a gallery who just purchased her pieces and is offering to house her and start a new life, and the owner of the gallery is... Stavros. I'm trying to help you here by not giving you too much time to think about it, so don't think about it. Did I mention Jack's wife is pregnant? Don't worry about it. Anyway, there's a reason why Jack needs the help of international arms dealer Yaz, Dennis Rodman, who has not brought the plastic population, but I'm not going to worry about it, and neither should you. Yaz is a bit weird and edgy, which you can tell by his orange string vest and the fact he's Dennis Rodman. And, for some reason, he decides at some point, despite having no reason whatsoever to help Jack Quinn save his wife, a new baby because the baby has been born now from Stavros. There's a really angry oriental gent in a hotel who is so assured of his martial arts skills that he chooses to flick a chair in the air and then kick it at Jack Quinn as an opening move. And I think I remember Mickey Rourke crying because he stepped on a landmine and can't run away from a tiger. Remember the tiger! And it was all happening inside the Colosseum in Rome, naturally. But ultimately, I have no idea what the hell I just watched. So... 
Double Team might stand as an example of the pitfalls of trying to transplant Hong Kong talent wholesale into the American studio system, but it is just too damn weird to be much of an example of anything (laughs) except maybe cocaine. Um, Interestingly, the screenplay reads like a bad dub of an early John Woo movie, but it isn't. It's actually something that's being touted as a functional piece of literature upon which millions of dollars ought to be brought to bear in service of putting it on screen. This is patently mental, as can be evidenced by lines like, Stavros is a snake. If you look him in the eyes, he'll get you in the back. Which is, does nothing so much as suggest that screenwriter Don Jacoby thinks a snake's eyes are located in its ass. So, enough stuff blows up in inventive ways that the movie at least gives the impression of some effort being expended, but the same cannot be said of the performances of its leads, in particular, Dennis Rodman, whose stunt casting defies any kind of logic whatsoever. It wouldn't necessarily be fair to criticise Rodman's acting per se, because it's not technically acting, and it's not just bad line reading either. What Rodman does is somehow create a third method of expression that exists beyond performance, and I'm not sure he ought not to be celebrated for it. It's just that it doesn't belong in a film so much as it does a peyote fueled vision quest. Ultimately, though the... (laughs) Oh no, I have to remember the pronunciation. Ultimately, though, the most wasted talent is Hawk, who seems here to be trapped inside a cross between a mid-90s MTV video and a fever dream, thrusting upon (laughs) us bonkers moments that sometimes border on the Takashi Miki end of the spectrum. Fortunately, this is not a movie that sets out to take itself seriously, and it is at least entertaining in some sense of the word. I can't imagine I'll ever watch Double Team again, but I'm also not sad about having watched it because this is very much something that exists. (laughs) This this is something that I have seen. (laughs) It is definitely a thing that I have now watched. (laughs) Are you glad that you watched it now, Drew? Are you glad that you did this to us? Honestly? Yes. Um, I can't say I didn't enjoy my time yeah, with this, Drew, but this I can't is, qualify that. This is generally one of the worst films I've ever seen, but <laughs> in the best way. <laughs> one of those films that makes so little sense, and let's get this straight, this film makes not a lick of sense. Nope. Um, in a way, but in a way that I couldn't stop questioning it, like, what, what is that thing? Why is he doing this? Why is Dennis Rodman now sitting inside a, a 1960s Fiat Cinquecento with a foot of his body sticking out the top of the sunroof? True, <laughs> spot on. I sat there throughout this whole thing going to myself, why am I having to think so hard about a Jean-Claude Van Damme movie? <laughs> but they clearly didn't think about it. <laughs> so why am I doing their thinking for them? Um, what is plot? <laughs> <laughs> and things just happen and they make no sense and, but I, I'm so glad I watched it because it is so entertainingly <laughs> weird and stupid and nonsensical um, and you picked up on some of the stuff that I was going to say too Craig against. I apologise for interrupting your intro no, no. when you said about the Stavros thing I was like yeah as soon as I heard Stavros I could stop thinking about Harry Enfield <laughs> um, and yeah the thing about yeah, he's like a snake if you the canals stab you back. You're just playing out this fundamental misunderstanding of how snakes work. <laughs> <laughs> what was the other bit as well? There was another line. Oh, two darts will kill a man, three will kill a rhino, and we want Stavros alive. And I thought yes. to myself, so one dart then, yeah? <laughs> I'm not sure you needed the bit about the rhino. <laughs> Ha, <laughs> ha,
<laughs> I think one of my favourite lines in history because there were a couple of points where I laughed out loud and it was obvious that the film wanted me to laugh. It wasn't just because it was bad. And I think one of my favourite <laughs> one of my favourite lines, and it's a Rodman line, is my lucky coin, my lucky detonator, and my lucky plastic explosives. <laughs> Like because of course this is a conversation you would be having with Jean Claude Van Damme and some internet enabled monks in a in a sewer beneath the Colosseum. Thank you, Dennis Rodman. Yeah. Uh, it's I said that um, the screenwriter displayed a fundamental misunderstanding of how snakes worked. <laughs> also displays a fundamental misunderstanding of how plot works. Um, <laughs> uh, it's just, <laughs> I mean, there's nothing, nothing about this film is good. The the actual camera work is terrible because it's full of Dutch angles with no understanding of what Dutch angles are for. Yeah. Uh, things just happen and they don't make any sense. Like Mickey Rook's character's child is murdered and he seems pissed off about that, but that's because he's in a firefight that you started because you brought several goons with automatic weapons mm. to a um, amusement park for some reason uh, and then I, even from the start the film had me irritated it went on to amuse me greatly but from the get go when it said um, he, he's stealing uh, somebody's trying to steal um, unenriched plutonium from outside of Croatia so Bosnia then or <laughs> Italy or um, something because Croatia's an entire country, you can't be outside of it and still call it Croatia. That's not how countries work. You don't understand that either, do you? So, no understanding of plot, no understanding of geography. Yeah. Because <laughs> it carries on later too quickly. He says to him, I thought I killed you in, or you thought you died in Lebanon. In Lebanon. Beirut, actually, which is the capital of Lebanon. <laughs> I was going to say. <laughs> 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 don't I'm looking you in the eyes don't get me in the back uh, and it's like the entire middle third of the film has yeah. nothing to do with anything at all like <laughs> he, uh, quite apart from the fact that he wasn't an agent he was asked to come back to do this so didn't owe anybody yeah. anything yeah. Um, and all, not that this film is unique in that regard of that particular stupidity but we <laughs> up this place called The Colony who don't understand how they're funded or why they exist or what happens there no nope. Um, I think but, they exist purely to pad this out to 90 minutes, Drew. Exactly, because <laughs> it doesn't have anything to do with the rest of the film at all. Well, un- unbelievably though, Drew, initially this was a screen... I think, if I remember um, half-assed internet research, um, as as some podcasts refer to it, or, or IMDB <laughs> trivia, as everyone else calls it, this started out as a screenplay called The Colony. And it was about his escape from the colony. Yeah. So everything a- else appears to have been bolted on around it, whereas it almost feels like everything else was there first and this got shoehorned in. Yeah, because the the title of it in English, Double Team, is a reference to the basketball play, mm-hmm. right? Um, but in certainly in Spanish-speaking countries, this film's called The Colony. Yeah. Like, but the, the colony has nothing to do with this film at all. No. So you've, so you've named the film after something completely incidental that happens for 10 minutes uh, somewhere in the middle. Yeah, so you can have a 30-minute montage of Jean-Claude Van Damme showing how awesome Jack Quinn is and how yeah. he's considerably better than you yeah. and um, that he's really inventive and fit 
And it was like, but it doesn't have anything to do with the plot at all. Also, Craig, it's, it's there purely so that you don't question him kicking a tiger in the last ten minutes, <laughs> because by that point you're like, yes, Jack Quinn would kick a tiger. Yeah, I, it's, um, yeah, but as well as him being in this apparently top secret anti-terrorist thing, uh-huh. where where they kill the anti-terrorist people if they try to escape, mm, uh, as well as being there and. Um, it being secret, they've been told everybody dies. Mickey Rourke's character probably knows he's there, not dead, because he leaves mm-hmm. messages for him that only they would find. Yeah, makes no sense. No. Um, and then when he gets out of that and hooks up with Dennis Rodman again, um, yeah, then the fun's just beginning. <laughs> See, the mistake you've made there, Drew, is that while you were watching this film, you allowed yourself to activate more than three synapses. Yeah, but you know that I'm actually physically incapable of not doing that, Craig. So well, I'm always at a disadvantage with such things. But that's um, it. I was still so entertained, but like there's a scene where, um, again, because everything just needs to happen. If that's because the plot needs it to happen, not because it makes any sense at all. Yeah. Like, towards the end, there's like Mickey Rourke says, "Give me sixty seconds, then kill both the women." Why? <laughs> Why? Well, because they need to have an action scene where Sean Connery Van Damme came to try to save the women. But yeah. not have Mickey Rook there because need him for the final. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, I was like, I that he's going to a hotel and he decides, well, what I'll do is I'll get every agency in the world to look for um, Stavros. Yeah. Um, so there's like, there's Mossad and there's the FBI and the CIA and there's the Italian police and there's a bunch of other things all outside this hotel in um, Italy. Then all of a sudden, there's this guy dressed as a police officer on horseback who's yeah. a murderer and just starts murdering people for I didn't reasons. understand who that guy was and what he was doing. Was he just there to murder people completely coincidentally? Well, um, or was he, he part of, I'm right assuming he's part of Stavros's crew, but to what this, end? He starts doing that right after somebody, I think Stavros, talks about someone. Yeah. But it doesn't actually match up with what went before. And since the rest of the film doesn't have a lot of matching up of things happening and what people actually say... Mm. I think it's entirely random, but he just starts murdering people because. Yeah. Uh, mm. Like innocent um, bystanders. Yeah. And then, Most bizarre. then we get to stop for a moment too while Jean-Claude Van Damme wears um, a wig, a perm wig, and Dennis Rodman's suddenly a 1930s gangster. Mm. Uh, and then, yeah, hotel fight where the man who kicks the chair at uh, Quinn suddenly takes off his shoe. Somehow inside his shoe he's managed to hide an entire flick knife which he uses <laughs> with his toes. You've never bought a shoe half a size too big then. <laughs> <laughs> and then they get really trapped but suddenly the um, Dennis Rodman, this arms dealer for Antwerp in Rome has a whole cadre of um, monks who help him out because they have Google? Craig, I know. Head hurting. I think while we're while we've been talking about this, I figured it out. <clears throat> about three minutes ago, the penny dropped while you were talking. This is the antimatter equivalent of a good movie, in that it behaves the same but it is inherently the opposite of. (laughs) And I think that explains why we have both come away thinking this is baffling, this is terrible, but for some reason there's a little nagging thing at the back of my brain that says, I 
kind of enjoyed this as if it was a good movie. Yeah, um, I honestly don't think I've enjoyed a film so much in this way, this mm. particular mm. way since um, yeah. Operation Kid Brother. It's yes, yeah, it's like that in the sense that it very much challenges classical notions <laughs> of what cinema, <laughs> what cinema is and ought to do. Yes, it's yeah. um, um. It's terrible. It's genuinely terrible. But I actually also absolutely recommend it because it's it's so terrible in such particular inventive ways. Yes, that I got a lot of it. Uh, well, I think we should also, quite apart from its um, tiger fighting minefield coliseum at the end, mm-hmm. uh, we have to. To mention the product placement, Craig, I have never seen such product placement in my life. I don't know that I haven't seen worse product placement, but it is, it's up there. It's um, certainly up there because I've been to the Coliseum and I don't remember, I don't remember seeing columns of Coke vending machines. No, but, um, yeah. And there, there are some product places earlier. There's Omega watches, mm-hmm. and they're quite prominent. And like, that is actually yeah, pretty blatant when he's on the when he's in the colony. That's quite egregious, but mm. okay. But then, uh, then at the end, we get the Colosseum's exploding. Quick, get behind this multiple row of Coca-Cola vending machines, which are bomb-proof and also on screen for about an hour and a half each. <laughs> Dennis Rodman's going to sit and hold this Coke vending machine against an explosion that for some reason, rather than being relatively instantaneous, is going to last for 60 seconds. Uh, yeah, it's pretty bad. And But the thing is, I mean, to what end did these people want to sponsor this movie? Why did why why did Omega want to place their product in this movie? Because it's something they're more interested in Bond movies. Yeah, and a Bond did they movie, think this, this was not. a Bond movie? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, at the time, um, Dennis Rodman was one yeah. of the big stars. Maybe around about the time he was married to Carmen Electra, yes, yeah. boy model, and um, when, when he's was playing for the Bulls and they were winning their second three-peat and yeah. their second hat-trick of titles. Um, so, I mean, I understand the stunt casting there, but yeah. still, it's not... I don't think it could ever have been that big a film. No. No. It's a, it, ultimately, it's a Jean-Claude either. Van Damme movie. <laughs> yeah. It, it's baffling. But... Um, well, that's, I hope they feel they got their money's worth. Um, yeah. It's... Uh, Oh, we even get a bonus Dennis Rodman song at the end. <laughs> yes, we do. It was Crystal Waters. <laughs> I'd forgotten about that. And I was really creeped out by his delivery <laughs> of his vocals. <laughs> There's something really unsettling about that. I really wish I hadn't been watching this movie in bed. That was just weird and right out, right out. But, um, yeah, interesting. Um, so... Uh, let us let's go on then because then I, I'm interested to see whether I have any penance to pay because I think it was myself who suggested our next movie which is Knockoff. Yes, so we recently covered a film in which old JC punched a cobra, and in this episode he's already beaten up a penguin and kicked a tiger. Here he's destroying some pumas. <laughs> I didn't even think about that while we were watching it. I was well, looking for one well of the best one I could go. Uh, well done, sir. 
sadly though, they have the German running shoe type. <laughs> and our JCVD fighting animals theme is shown at last to be nothing more than a paper thin veneer over our desire just to continue talking about JCVD. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, the tr- <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> so much better a link than this film deserves or any of this deserves to be honest <laughs> sorry I don't know why that's tickled me <laughs> oh dear sorry Drew yeah. the truth will out uh, but her desire to shoehorn more JCV into her feed will out error <laughs> Uh, here, Monsieur Van Varenberg teams up once more with Choi Hawk, uh, but Dennis Rodman is replaced in the Don't Give Up the Day Job co star role by Rob Schneider, whose day job this unfortunately is. <laughs> oh dear. Uh, the script is from diehard co writer Stephen E. D'Souza. Strange how these things to cr- seems these things seem to cross pollinate, isn't it? Oh yeah, um, and involves Rob Schneider's Tommy Hendricks and his partner JCVD's Marcus Ray and their business of manufacturing jeans for a US fashion brand, and also making and selling counterfeit goods, but not the counterfeit jeans that are an important plot point. That was somebody else, apparently. <laughs> And Tommy is also a CIA operative who has been working undercover in Hong Kong for four years on something, but not the thing that the film's about, which is miniaturized <laughs> Russian explosives disguised as button batteries and studs, <laughs> as he's totally oblivious to that until Marcus literally steps on. This is a dumb film. <laughs> The whole thing is about a sub-sub-James Bond plot by some Russians, possibly <laughs> the Russian mafia, to plant the devices in lots of everyday objects, such as those aforementioned counterfeit jeans, as well as electronics and toys, and then extort $100 million a month from the US government to not blow them all up. There's also a Hong Kong detective, I think, who seems to be doing his own investigation into the explosives and who, unlike Tommy, does know about them, as he has a handy miniaturised exploding battery location device. <laughs> <laughs> Though the hows and the whys of this are not considered important for we poor viewers, who also have to put up with horrible camera work and editing, bizarre slow-mo and blurring while having no idea what's going on, or having any reason to care. <laughs> To add to the mystery, the film is also set in a few days before Hong Kong's return to Chinese rule, with the finale taking place during the ceremonies themselves, though for no good reason, and instead raising the question of why the celebrations are still going ahead the day after a Hong Kong landmark was blown sky high, along with hundreds of people, by terrorists. Did I mention that this is a dumb film? (laughs) And I nearly forgot. One of the opening scenes involves an underground, unlicensed charity rickshaw race. Yeah. In which people cheat and others get maimed and injured. You know, for charity. <laughs> charity being support the maimed rickshaw runners. <laughs> um, additionally, the poster is one of the ugliest and dullest I think I've ever seen. Especially for a film of this scale. <laughs> Tri-star pictures are hardly being... I love that you're drilling in at the poster now. (laughs) Uh, It's it's so bad though, Craig. Um, It really is. TriStar Pictures are apparently being unable to allocate any of the film's $35 million budget to more than five minutes of an artist's time. 
Though I suppose the poster does at least set one's expectations appropriately. The, the poster was clearly done by the intern, wasn't it? <laughs> it's like, oh, cool, your second day in Photoshop and you made this. <laughs> I certainly had reservations about watching this when Craig suggested it due to the presence of Rob Schneider. But, yeah. and I can barely believe I'm saying this, yeah. knockoff matches to underuse them yeah. for at least half of the film and probably more. Schneider doesn't give what could be called a Rob Schneider performance. He's just there, largely inoffensively. However, at a few points, the script does call for him to be more annoying and, well, schneider and he's not there for it, though it's not his fault. This film has caused me to defend Rob Schneider. <laughs> what the hell is happening? <laughs> Knockoff is a complete dud. Confusing, stupid, messy, and Unlike Double Team, which is atrociously bad, but at least kept me constantly asking who, what and why, it's just too damn boring to care about. Needs real pumas out of ten. <laughs> I didn't I didn't hate this movie quite as much as you, but it's certainly it's interesting. I think my my opening gambit on this was that unbelievably I did not find Rob Schneider to be unsufferable. So that makes that He's, makes two of us drew. He was fine for the most part. He was Yeah. You know. I think there's an argument to be made that if this had been a slightly better film, that in terms of like production value, this is the opposite of Double Team, and that it's far better to send Hollywood talent to Hong Kong to make a Hong Kong movie that just happens to have Hollywood talent in it. I think it hangs together somewhat more coherently as a movie than Double Team, if not if not in terms of uh, the amount of time that's been lavished on coming up with a plot. Um, and the, the thing that I enjoyed most about it, so in the last Compare and Contrast episodes that you guys recorded, Scott spoke about Van Damme loosening up a bit and given the appearance of enjoying himself more and that definitely applies to him here he's clearly having a whale of a time um, and he's actually not that bad a comic per- performer and his performance here is very much more sort of in the vein of in a comic vein than something more traditional that you would expect from a Van Damme movie I think I'd probably make a lot of the same comments about this film as Scott did about Double Impact so I'm going to avoid parroting that um, I thought there were actually elements to enjoy about this Um I would add that in this instance, Hawk actually seems a lot more evident as a presence behind the camera. Um, there's a good deal more martial, martial arts for a start, although bizarrely I understand that a lot of the final fight scenes between Van Damme and the two main bad guys on the boat got chopped in the edit. Um, yeah. No, I think you can see most of the martial arts thanks to editing and really strange... Um Framing. I really want to know what's going on there because um, it was. I think it was it Sammo Hung was the fight choreographer for this film. Sammo Hung was the fight choreographer in Double Team. I'm not sure about this one. Yeah, I'm pretty sure he was on this as well. You know, and for some reason, I would love to know why they excised the the fight stuff. Is it, it just didn't work? I can't believe that for a minute because the stuff that's been left in isn't that great in that that sort of final scene. Um, and yes, I have made a note <laughs> that most notably the camera is almost always doing something interesting in this movie. Um, every second shot in this film is from an, a, a unique perspective and boy, does it not work. Um, <laughs> it certainly gave me an interesting game to play and I called that game Don't Vomit While I Guess the Next Angle. Um, it's all over the place and it's not so much I, I think it's the, 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 the photographic equivalent of just throwing everything at the wall to see what sticks but really not much of it sticks um, 
The other thing that this movie evidences uh, is that Hollywood production simply cannot echo this, is that Hong Kong stunt performers are so willful in disregard of their own physical faculties <laughs> that it beggars belief. And I can't imagine that they've unionised yet, but this is still very much at the peak of that. Hey, jump out of the way of this uncontrolled car and hope for the best period in uh, Hong Kong action cinema. There's a bit at the end of this film where I was just like... You know the scene where they're in the car and they drive the car out of the window aiming for the top of the shipping container? Um, yes. And whether or not it was intended, the car does not land properly on the shipping container. And it's surrounded by these... It's surrounded by stunt performers. And there is so clearly no control of how that car is performing, where it's going, what speed it's doing, what the best these guys could have hoped for was in terms of which way are we going to get out of the way? Because it is, it is clearly just a random act of physics. Um, and the fact that nobody got mashed by that car in that scene is baffling, absolutely baffling. And you know that those guys are not getting paid enough. I don't care what the budget of this film is, man. Those, those Hong Kong, uh, those Hong Kong stunt actors do, are not getting paid enough. Um, this is just, oh my God. The production value of this film is among the better ones. However, it just feels like a really wasted opportunity because I got the real sense that this was more comfortable being a Hong Kong set, Hong Kong action movie, but it just doesn't work off the back of that script. The, the script is absolutely bizarre. W what are we talking about? Explain. Exploding jeans rivets? What? And it's about half an hour into the film where I thought there was something really wrong with the grading of the film or something. Where I'm like, why do all, why do all the explosions look green in this movie? What is this? Is is there just a huge amount of sulphur in the atmosphere of of uh, of over Hong Kong? But um, it gets explained about half an hour in, and you're like, all oh, right, okay, um, but it's not necessary to the plot whatsoever. Yeah, and like neither is that entire first section when like you show them blowing up and the dolls filled with yeah. these things blowing up under the water. Yeah. I didn't understand what was going on there at all. No, I didn't either. I actually stopped at five minutes in and I went back because I was adamant that I had missed something or I'd missed a key piece of dialogue and it's just, no, no, just don't expect an explanation for that anytime soon, anytime in the first half of the movie. Um, I think it's startling that, that uh, Rob Schneider isn't offensive in this. Um, it's really... Wow. Mind-blowing to think about. I can't help but feel this has just ever so slightly just missed the mark and that it's just gone off the edge of what could have been actually a halfway decent movie if it had had just a, a better script underneath it. Because Van Damme's having a whale of a time and I actually thought he was pretty engaging in this. Um, but the rest of the film just doesn't hang together whatsoever. Um, well, I don't know. It's um, it's weird. I get what you're saying about Van Damme kind of doing this almost like comedically, but he's the only one. Yeah. Um. Yeah. It, also, it, it was just double team that Samuel Hung was on. Craig, he wasn't credited on um, knockoff. So oh, was he not? Okay. Maybe had he been, he might have got the cinematographer to yeah. actually frame the shot so people could see the martial arts. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. Like. It's so, the Rob Schneider thing's the thing that's getting me about this. Um, but it's, the script is so poor. Yeah. Um, they've got, like, there's that bit at the, near the end, it's one of the bits I was referring to and I said, like, it needs to be a bit Rob Schneider, really. Yeah. Um, the woman who turns up who's also in the CIA. Yeah. Um, and apparently if you put CIA badges under, 
ultraviolet light, it says valid. That's how you know they're a real CIA agent. Mm-hmm. But okay. Uh, it, she's like, they're tied, she's tied up next to Rob Schneider. Um, and he makes some comment and she says, oh, get him away from me. Like, that only works if you'd had him being really irritating for the last couple yeah. of minutes. Yeah. And it just, you can't just drop that in there without it setting up at all. It's, no. the whole thing is such a mess. This um, thing, do you know what actually it's just occurred to me and I can't believe it didn't occur to me while I was watching it is that this ought to have been a Jackie Chan movie this is like a script because we're talking about he's the only way behave, he's the, Van Damme's the only one behaving in that sort of slightly slapstick way and if you actually think about the physicality of the role and some of the stuff later on with him kicking his way in between sort of um, shipping containers as they're sliding about the boat that's yeah. got all the hallmarks of a Jackie Chan like a rejected Jackie Chan script you can imagine Jackie Chan in his role yeah. I mean, because like, you can see that clearly Van Damme can do that stuff because mm. he's like the bit he's, he's um, scrabbling along the floor to get away from the shipping container. Yeah. There's a scene in the garage when he's um, crawling around the pillar. Yeah. Um, like he's clinging on like a wee spider monkey on top of this pillar before he jumps down and takes out the gang that are chasing him. Yeah. It's like, and that's pretty impressive. Yeah. Um, but you don't really get to see most of what he's doing for the rest of the time because it's constant chopping, weird blurriness and slow-mo, um, horrible camera angles. It's it's just a mess of a film. Yeah. I appreciate that they were trying to do something with the cinematography, but you know, sometimes less is more. <laughs> it's just bizarre. Just the choices in this are bizarre. I was really looking forward to this because it had been recommended to me by people some time ago, uh, back round about when it came out, to be honest with you, um, when I was working in one of my first jobs, and I've never caught, sort of gotten around to watching it. So... I think probably of the movies that we've spoken about tonight, I think there's no doubt that we'd probably put this at the bottom of the pile. Oh, yeah, comfortably. Yeah, it's it's more consistent in behaving like a movie than (laughs) Double Team is, but then Double Team just feels like it's trying to be something different entirely, and it kind of makes a better fist of that, the specific thing it's doing. Knockoff's script is still terrible. It doesn't make a lick of sense again. No. But um, you can sort of joint up in your mind a bit more. Yeah. Whereas Double Team is basically a fever dream. Yeah. And it's all the better for it. Yeah. Uh, yeah, Knockoff's just conventionally bad, but I didn't hate it. I was just bored by it. Yeah. Whereas Double Team doesn't let you get bored. Yeah. It's like, this is terrible. Why is this terrible thing happening? Why is he doing this? Why is this happening? Who is he? What is... And like, I constantly question it, but it makes it really, really engaging. Yeah. Not good, but engaging. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Um, the thing about the thing about uh, Double Team is that it kind of comes across as though maybe David Lynch had tried to make an action movie. <laughs> <laughs> maybe maybe that's a good way of describing it. I don't know. It's probably not. I thought, I'd like to see David Lynch make an action movie. Actually, there's a, there's an idea. Um, but there we the go. The basketball players are not what they seem. No. <laughs> You're on fire tonight, mate. Um, So here's the question for our listeners. Oh, this is what I wanted to talk about. Okay, very topical at the moment with everything that's going on right now with the good old COVID-19. I have spotted that Jean-Claude Van Damme may very well be an effective transmission vector for this virus because not once during any of these movies did I see him wash his feet. And he was putting his feet in a lot of people's faces. That's all I'm saying. That's all I'm saying. Fuds on film. Fuds on film.
And we will close things out today with another old JCVD episode with not quite so successful results uh, to understate things a touch, covering maximum risk, replicant and in hell. I'm interested that you said we've run out of options in combating animals, so I think if our listeners take away nothing else from tonight, it will be that instead we've moved on to films where Jean-Claude Van Damme combats logic. <laughs> yes. and, and talking of that, Craig, um, in a film um, where... <laughs> The characters move from the seaside city of Nice mm-hmm. to go to Paris at one point, and a key point of being in Paris is to go for seafood. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's carry on with the, the illogic that is maximum risk. Aye. <laughs> oh, dear. <laughs> I'm really glad I've had a stiff drink before we begin this tonight. <laughs> okay, the mid-90s. Remember those? Hell of a time. Turns out to have been golden hour for big-budget action movies, but we weren't to know that. We were in our mid-teens, in love with Hong Kong heroic bloodshed, and if anyone so much as looked at a pair of matching handguns, our brains probably started melting out of our ears. In 1993, John Woo made the hop across the Pacific to make his US debut with Hard Target, which my comrades have spoken about at some length already in a prior podcast. At that point, the movie's star, one Jean-Claude Van Damme, had a bit of momentum behind him, and it's not hard to imagine that he saw in that movie's success something of a formula. So it was, Van Damme himself suggested tapping up more Hong Kong talent, this time City on Fire director Ringo Lam, for another high-profile outing in the form of 1996's Maximum Risk. Pair Van Damme up with a smoking hot 20-something rising star in the form of Natasha Henstridge, a transatlantic Nice Cops versus New York Rusky Gangsters plot, a hot pinch of mistaken identity, shake over ice and watch the kudos and cash come rolling on in. Totally didn't work. (laughs) Alain Moreau explains the accent, is a niece cop whose attention is called by his colleague Sebastian, Jean Hughes, actually French Anglade, to the appearance of a corpse which looks staggeringly similar to Alan. Actually, it's identical. We, the audience, have been privy in the first five minutes of the movie as to how the corpsage evented itself. But I'm not going to bother too much with that because it's quite intentionally, or sorry, quite unintentionally funny. <laughs> and the only moment I actually enjoyed in the entire movie. That's a lie, as we were discussing off mic earlier, so I'd quite like to keep it for myself, if you don't mind. Anywho, a bit of rummaging around in a lawyer's office reveals two things. An adoption agreement and a large angry Russian psycho with a red face called Red Face. Red Face duly gets his comeuppance as he is knocked cold by Alan and thrown into the raging furnace that is the now torched office. (laughs) There'll be no coming back from that. Alan discovers that the dead man is, in fact, <laughs> his identical twin, of course, Mikhail Suvorov, separated at an early age and raised by a wealthy gangster on the streets of New York's Little Odessa. Mikhail had apparently been making a clean break from that way of life and was in search of his brother when the Russians caught up with him in Nice. Determined to get to the bottom of all this rather, you know, than having the sense one would assume of a seasoned detective and keeping well clear of incredibly dangerous gangsters on an entirely separate continent, Alan reckons it would be a hoot to fly to New York and have a poke around in Mikhail's old life. Because I want to know my brother... 
Along the way, he is, obviously, mistaken for his twin brother, who nobody had any reason to know about, and subsequently, Mikhail's problems are now Alan's problems. Oh, and Mikhail's girlfriend too, because there's nothing morally reprehensive about sleeping with a woman who legitimately thinks you're her partner, as opposed to his twin brother who she didn't know existed. <laughs> Hilarity ensues. <laughs> Only it doesn't. This podcast has laboured tirelessly now to bring to your attention that the only thing conceivably better than a Van Dam is two Van Dams. I think the collective noun is a split of Van Dams. <laughs> and I'm <laughs> How long did you work on that? Don't, don't, I'm really pleased with that. <laughs> don't, don't take that away from me. That was the first time in years I've been proud of something as I was typing it. Um, I remember to um, play this episode for your kids sometime soon. <laughs> remember not to swear, Craig. So, yeah, consider this an apology of sorts. Almost nothing about Maximum Risk makes sense, from the plot to the casting to the fact that Ringo Lamb would look at the script and think, yes, I watched this movie two nights ago and I already remember almost nothing of it, bar the funny bit I mentioned at the start and the sight of Natasha Henstridge naked, which is exactly why Natasha Henstridge was cast in this movie. It's really sad to think it's taken almost a quarter century to bury this kind of lecherous gaze in mainstream movies, which bizarrely this kind of was at the time but dare I say the movie's worst crime is to be so utterly forgettable there are a couple of oh that guy performances in there, poor Zach Grenier I'm looking at you, but otherwise there's a cast you've never heard of nor seen since, and the script oh the script from the bizarrely earnest to the earnestly bizarre we run the gamut from parents always lie to their children to prepare them for the way they will be treated later by the government to, you've gotten a lot harder since you've been away. <laughs> and, <laughs> and did I mention this was an action movie? I did, didn't I? Right at the start. Well, it's not. I lied. It has no action in it whatsoever. So I'm not sure if this is, this is an action movie with no action, or everyone involved thought it was a thriller, in which case it has no thrills. I think the latter might be true, because this was apparently originally to be called The Exchange, but that wasn't deemed Van Damme enough of the title. Never mind that it made a lot more sense. I don't think one has to stretch one's intellect all that much to see why Lamb never did... <laughs> Never did get to make his face off. <laughs> Although, actually, we'll talk about that more in a minute. Um, though the misguided career opportunity afforded by Van Damme, which no doubt came from a genuine place, certainly explains how these two ended up in each other's company so much over the coming years. Uh, in short, I see no reason whatsoever to recommend anyone ever watching this movie. The name doesn't make any sense, does it? There's nothing maximum or risky about pretty much anything that happens in it apart from thinking somehow that... Zach Grenier could do in Russian accent. <laughs> or, or I'm thinking as a central plot point, there's no reason for me to go and mess with incredibly dangerous gangsters, but let's. It's a bit uh, risky, to be fair. I, actually <laughs> I don't know about thought, maximum, but it's quite risky. I, I just knew nothing about this film at all till you'd mentioned it a couple of weeks ago, Craig, during one of our other mm. discussions about Van Damme. And... I sit down and watch this and it, it starts off in the south of France like oh I like the south of France that's quite good you don't see that many action films set there mm. and the buildings and streets and things look quite different from a lot of other places oh this looks like quite an interesting location at least visually and then of course your man has his accident on his 
Is it like a moped or something? I've forgotten the de- actual details. Right now. It's like a, it's yeah, it's, it's like, like a aid, vegetable delivery Vespa or something. Yeah, yeah. Um, which he clearly breaks, um, pulls the brakes on as he's coming to the at wall, and then it clearly accelerates. Once it stops after that. Um, <laughs> I laughed so hard at that scene and I can only assume it was not intended to be funny. That was the most unintentionally funny thing I have seen in months. Yeah, I also laughed heartily at that. Quick. <laughs> to be fair, I Why would recommend that? this film simply because of that, because it was very funny. <laughs> in, in retrospect as well, and it's something you can only appreciate after having viewed the movie, in that first five minutes, the way that character acts... Van Damme's other character, Mikhail. Does he act the way you would expect a hardened gangster who has grown up in Little Odessa, New York to act? Or does he act as though he's in an Inspector Clouseau movie? It's very much more the second, right, isn't it? <laughs> yes. Yeah. So, so it starts off in Nice in the south of France. So they can, oh, very interesting. Like, and then within, what, 10 minutes, we're basically in gloomy supposed to be New York alleyways oh great I've not seen that 10,000 times wonderful how interesting and visually distinctive that was (laughs) and yet things didn't look up from there it's the, the accents are appalling and inconsistent and I don't know it's just Oh, I, I, mean, I, I can remember more of it than I care to, um, such as my curse, but it's it's just so nondescript right. in the most part, apart from the fact that we get to the end of it, Natasha Henstridge says to Alan, you're a good person, as was your brother. Your mm-hmm. brother, the Russian mafia person. Yeah. Weird definitions you have there, lady. Mm-hmm. But of course... Um, you decided to get off with this person who you now know is not your brother while being held hostage by two FBI agents in a tiny bathroom. Super romantic. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. Oh, she's got no problem squaring that away. <laughs> Can I not also point out the only reason this movie starts in Nice is to explain away Van Damme's accent. Could we not have set it in Brussels? Um... I think Belgian accents, unless you really know French, I suspect, are at least similar enough to French that I'll let that slide. He's done a lot are, of films in France. Are there are there tax reasons? Is it, is it cheaper to film in France than it is in Belgium? Did they want uh, a holiday? I don't know, but it, it's strange that they bother to explain his accent because they kind of give up on that <laughs> in the next two films. <laughs> Next to this is one. Of, <laughs> this is one of a handful of films where they felt obliged to even attempt. I think I'm, I'm not quite as down on maximum risk as you guys are, but I still wouldn't recommend it to anyone. Okay, don't I think, value our friendship. Then I think part of that is because of seeing the next two films that we'll go talk about. And it's made this, in retrospect, quite it's a bit all, better. It's all relative, right, Scott? If if you squint at maximum risk a bit, it looks like a normal film, which is not something you can probably say of the other two. You know, it, it shares enough commonality with conventional plotting that you can probably see it in a reflection and think it's a proper film and um, yeah it's just not very good Uh, it's it's, it's more of a thriller it's trying to reach parts of Jean-Claude Van Damme's um, acting range that I don't think he can quite uh, get to and the, the script hasn't quite backed up. Things like oh. trying to have an emotional scene over the death of the taxi driver that he's known for a day. It's like, eh, oh, that was, oh, I forgot about no the taxi you. driver. Yeah, that the guy who's basically shocking. Mel Gibson in, a, in Conspiracy Theory. <laughs> conspiracy theory. Yeah. You, and listen, and you know that that guy playing the taxi driver thought this was going to be his big break. 
yeah. he was acting he was in an entirely <laughs> different film. <laughs> yeah, that was uh, that's actually just you mentioned that's got reminded me of something else. A couple points in this film actually where someone gets like injured or something, and it, because apparently the characters have read the script, they know they don't need to bother trying to phone in for an ambulance or anything. No, <laughs> like, it's not going to work. Even it's like the situation is that you know possibly they could be saved. You'd maybe try. So I know we've read the script, we know he doesn't make it, so we won't bother. <laughs> it's almost a pastiche of um, genre cliches and tropes almost hangs enough together as well enough that if you don't inspect it too closely, you could think of it as a proper film, but it's, it's not a very good one. And I wouldn't particularly um, advise that anyone go and check it out, even if they are the hardened Jean-Claude Van Damme film, because it doesn't really deliver anything of use that uh, Jean-Claude Van Damme typically would. It's not an awful lot of action. There's perhaps a one decent car chase at the very end, um, and that part after the, uh, the, the fall they're all at the bank. But it's not worth enough. And and I did like that first opening sequence where you're joined in media res, which is the first time you'd say that about a John-Claude Van Damme film. Um, (laughs) But the whole stretch in the middle is just not even competent. Almost competent, but not quite. And that's not really what we're in the the business of advising people watch. So, yeah, no. The whole thing's absolutely perfunctory. That's my Mm. problem with it. Yeah. Yeah, but it's... Scott's trade though is that no, it's a film. It has the traits of a film, not the traits of a good film. It has the traits of a film. It certainly appears to have been shot on film stock. Yeah. I'll give it yes. that. But what I don't get though is like, in what way is this a Ringo Lamb film? Mm-hmm. For all of the problems of Jean Wu's. I don't know why I suddenly made them Jean Wu's, like now he's French. <laughs> <laughs> um, all Jean Claude pro- Van Wu. Yes, Jean Wu Van Damme. <laughs> All of the problems of John Woo's Hollywood outputs, like they had like a, a flair and a style in certain places, and they felt like a John Woo film. Mm-hmm. Whereas this, like, where's the Ringo Lamb stamp on this? There's no flair or style or anything. You know, it's, it's been a while since I watched a lot of Ringo Lamb films, but the only bit there's only like one scene even that had a little bit of that personality to it to me, which was when after the, the, the chase at the end when they crashed the van, I think they're in at the time, and. Um, What's his face? The uh, Russian bad guy who's uh, Zach Grenier's character. Um, He's either Mikhail Yurin or Dimitri, because that's as inventive as they got with the names. Oh, it's Ivan Craig. It's like the Russian Russian John. Mm -hmm. You could not get less inventive (laughs) than having somebody called Ivan. It's the bit where he's got, right, he has his mate in the, uh, his his French cop mate in the van as a hostage. Mm -hmm. They've kind of broken free, the guy's (laughs) broken free a bit, and then he shoves Ivan up through the window, and Jean-Claude batters him back down again. (laughs) (laughs) That that one scene, this only bit's got any kind of personality to it whatsoever. Over. So there's something that's um, popped back into my memory there though. It's like, there's actually one point of Jean-Claude Van Damme's acting in this. I thought, oh, actually that was quite good. Um, and it was unexpected. It's like the bit when he's in the bank listening to the tape recorded, the recorded tape message of his brother. Yeah. And he's sitting and he's, he's crying a wee bit and his lips slightly quivering. But actually, yeah. that was quite subdued. It's like, I didn't think Jean-Claude Van Damme had that in him. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Where's it in the rest of the film? Because yeah. <laughs> um, like, that could have so easily go over the top. It's actually no, it's like that's actually pitched pretty much perfectly. We we touched on this the last time when when you and I um, it was just you and I, wasn't it, Drew? In the last Van Damme episode, the double team it? one, yeah, yes, about double team stuff. We spoke about this before, where there's 
oh my God, there's a sense of frustration around Van Damme has actually got some talent. I think it was acknowledged at the time. I think when he did, I think one of the whole things around the point at which Nowhere to Run, as it called, came out, I've not actually seen it, but I remember the conversation around it that people were acknowledging that of all these sort of sort of B movie action stars, that Van Damme might actually be the guy who might be able to break through and who actually had some sort of acting talent, and mm-hmm. we see f- sort of at various points we see sort of really frustrating little glimpses, and I would argue the next film we're going to talk about there's one or two there. They feel comically out of place in the context <laughs> of the actual film, but there's one or two instances where you're like, oh bless him, he's actually he's not that bad, and he's making a bit of an effort, and you can imagine this performance actually sitting quite well if it was in an entirely different movie. <laughs> yeah, if something actually deserves it. I mean, if you look at the stuff he actually does in JCVD, he clearly has some acting skill. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's certainly it can do some reasonably subtle emotions, you know. So There's a film we uh, need to go back to. JCVD, mm. yeah. I wouldn't have any problem with that. Mm. Um, I think we're never going to go back to maximum risk though, are we? No. No. No, so no, we're not. shall we move on? If we must. Uh, <laughs> I know you don't particularly want to talk about it, Scott, but uh, yes. <laughs> let, I've let, done my part and I'm damned <laughs> if you're not going to do yours. <laughs> Let's... Let's move on to a film which, um, of all of the Hollywood bullshit, has one of my absolutely least favourite things in that invokes the wonderful idea of genetic memory. So <laughs> this film can get bent. I knew this was going to wind you up. <laughs> yes, uh, we're talking about Replicant. Uh, in Replicant, we are introduced to our boy JCVD playing a serial killer. Naughty boy. Edward the Torch Garrot has been leaving a trail of incinerated mothers across Seattle with the lead investigator, Michael Rooker's detective, Jake. Riley unable to capture him, although he comes close in the film's kick-off cross-town chase. However, as he's retiring, somewhat early it seems, Ruger's not that old, um, so he's closing the book on this and going home to be a family man. Garot, however, isn't done with the detective, making threatening phone calls and generally being a bit of a nuisance, so when a shady and apparently institutionally insane government agency shows up, offering him another chance to get his man, he accepts. In stark defiance of all science, logic and reason, they have grown a clone of Garoth as a prototype of a terrorist capturing system, as they are totally a thing genetic memories can be used to track them down once they have been reactivated by well, let's not look for explanations that don't exist even in this film's universe. To be fair to Riley, his first thought now that we know exactly what it looks like, let's plaster his mugshots all over across the city, is a very reasonable one. However, it's one that cannot be done for the reason that a film has to be perpetrated upon us. So instead Riley is given custody of the replicant Garot, who is a quick study of gymnastics, but essentially has the mind of a child otherwise, to try and raise, I guess, with the hopes of prompting clues to the real Garot's location. Oh, and they're apparently psychically linked too, because screw it, why not? I'm only disappointed they didn't give them lightsabers. Yes, well, they did say they, they resequenced the genome to make him um, psychic, Scott. Yes. It's, it's all explained. It's easily done. <laughs> well, the end doesn't happen otherwise. <laughs> Lads, at this point, we're 20 minutes into the film, which <laughs> into which has been packed an impressively dense amount of nonsense. I had perhaps been hoping this would escalate into their double team of podcast passers. 
relaxing. Sadly, the film settles into a nice relaxing coma for the next hour, with very little <laughs> of interest happening, apart perhaps from a few scenes where an understandably stressed and confused Riley takes out his frustrations physically and verbally on clone garrot, which comes across a lot like child abuse or kicking a puppy. It picks up a little bit in the final stretch, in a with a fight in a geriatric ward where they're throwing old geezers and wheelchairs at each other in a pretty decent hacking sequence, but that's very much too little too late after a flat middle that's taking a stupid concept altogether too seriously. I can't lay all that much with the blame at Van Damme or Rooker's feet, or even Lingo Lambs, to be honest, who are more or less doing as well they can with the material available to them, but Lawrence Riggins and Les Weldon skips just isn't up to snuff, with a premise that needs to be either much more or much less ridiculous. While, <laughs> as you've probably gathered by now, I do not recommend you seek out Replicant, I also can't bring myself to say that I hate it. It ultimately was just too dull to have too strong an opinion on, which I certainly wasn't expecting after that opening salvo of silliness. Back down the memory hole you go, and I shall never think of you again, yes. unless I revisit the vaguely similarly themed Jet Li vehicle Unleashed, or Danny the Dog in some parts of the world, which oh, I recall yeah. being a great deal more fun than this. Yes. It also had Bob Hoskins. Yes. Struck me nuts. <laughs> yeah. I was also, Scott, very uncomfortable at Michael Rooker's character in the way he was just beaten up what is effectively a two-day-old child with yeah, no memory. Yeah, that's three of us. Yeah, that was not not comfortable at all. This film's tremendously stupid, but it's not stupid enough. <laughs> yes. And like you, I've, I was, it's not good. Um, and there's nothing, basically nothing redeeming about it. But I didn't hate it. I was just bored. Yeah. I was just sitting there with my eyes pointing in the direction of the screen. Like, well, that's dumb. After but, 20 minutes, it just goes round in a circle for a whole hour and doesn't no. do anything. It doesn't, well, it does the same thing about four or five times and then ends. It's like, ugh, just yeah. no, 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 thank you. It's weird too. There, there's, a, there's a kind of weirdly dark thing stuck at the end too, which actually, in terms of a proper film about this kind of thing, would actually be quite sinister, which is when he goes to visit his, when the bad guy goes to visit his mother in the yeah. in the hospital with his wig like a dyed string mop <laughs> and he's saying that you know I killed this woman for you and uh, you know I, I cut her nice and slow and stuff like that's super creepy if you have it in a film with the tone of something like Seven yeah. not in a Ringo Lamb supposed martial arts film with Jean-Claude Van Damme and, you, and you're not go. dressed the way you are <laughs> yes <laughs> Yeah, so just to chime in, I, so I have I have detailed files, right? <laughs> I'm going to read some of this back out of order because based on the fact of what we've just been saying about Jake, so I'll go to the last note that I've made, which is, is Jake the most irredeemable piece of ever? He gives replicant literal dogs abuse throughout, completely dehumanises him at every turn, then turns around and proclaims, I'm your family now, as if this isn't the thin end of a really terrible wedge. <laughs> yes. And why isn't his partner, that woman, creeped out by that? The yes. fact that he's in the house with her son and he's doing that to another human I'm being. I'm just going to handcuff this guy to a pipe in the cellar. Don't think too much <laughs> about it. I was actually really pleased with the way this movie ended because I'd have thrown my phone out of the f***ing window if Replicant had ended up living with Jake. <laughs> 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 I'm like, like, what the happy horse is this? That is hands down the strangest dynamic I've come across in a film ever. And I am really pleased because the film showed no 
no iota of being aware enough of itself that I thought it was actually going to end the way it did. I throughout, I'm like, oh shit, he's going to end up living with this guy who is the most abusive, narrow-minded person I have had the misfortune to cross paths with and be called a good guy in a film in any number of years. That that character, Michael Rooker's character, oh my days. How do you read that script and sign on thinking, yes, I I would like to try and convey that to an audience? (laughs) That is mental, absolutely mental. The first note I've made, slightly less in depth, is why have they built a helicopter pad in a bush? (laughs) <laughs> Which, oh, I thought as well. Why well, is it a stealth helicopter? I, pad? I watched that and I went, eh? and then it wasn't until so two days later today I went back and I had a look when I was preparing these notes and I had a quick look at IMDb trivia and I think under under goofs someone has listed there's a, a helicopter lands in a bush for no reason and I thought oh good it's not just me then yeah. it's not a goof though because you don't do that by accident there's a helicopter on it exactly <laughs> um, so yeah for me the biggest question and if I, if I may try and paraphrase what I think you guys were perhaps trying to encapsulate is that it's remarkable to me that this film appeared to be trying so hard and had so many ideas, yet I somehow found it less rewarding than Maximum Risk. <laughs> this is clearly, to, to my mind, if you look at the timing of this, this feels like this feels like Ringo Lamb trying to do his face off, but without the budget, the stars or even a halfway decent script. It's trying to do that thing of playing around with the theme of duality, which Face Off did. But Face Off, to your point, Scott, had the decency to just go all in and be as mental as possible. And that's why that worked. Um, Whereas this just keeps falling flat on its ass. So the minute, and no, no joke, Drew, the minute... The, the the phrase genetic memory got thrown up. I burst out laughing. I thought of you, right? The, the idea of that, though, is no more stupid than the premise of swapping faces intrinsically. But the problem is that this movie just takes itself far too earnestly. But again, to the point we were making before, bless Van Damme if he isn't really trying his best to act here and yeah. act with a capital A. The man-child stuff occasionally borders on touching He's making a real effort, but then it forgets it's trying to be a violent serial killer movie and it goes for laughs by having him walk out into the street wrapped in toilet tissue. And it's like, wait a minute, is this a thriller or is this Rain Man? What are you trying... What is it you're going for here? And bless him, Van Damme is making such an effort. It doesn't even kick anyone in the face in this movie until like an hour and 20 minutes in. This is genuinely... This is genuinely his best attempt at doing something that I've seen so far, that something that would constitute, inverted commas, acting. And it is possibly the worst context for him to have deployed this in. It's remarkable. Yeah, everything about this just feels so misguided. And the, the notion of genetic memory, is that thing, and you've spoken about it a lot of times, Scott, this thing that a lot of people will speak about, which is right. I will give you one leap of faith, right? I will buy into one ridiculous concept for your film, but you'd better back it up. And listen, genetic memory is no more daft than any any other number of things. If it's going to make the movie work, that's fine. But 
this movie doesn't work. It doesn't even follow through. It doesn't. It doesn't have the good faith to follow through on the premise of genetic memory and that. Okay, you can have the fight at the end, like you said, Scott. The whole thing of right. So what? So what training has he got? He's watched the gymnastics video, <laughs> and then that's deployed, and that, that pays off in a whole one scene where he's having a fight with those FBI guys or whatever the hell they are, and the. Uh, in whatever location it is, I can't remember. And they end up standing, staring at him, completely dumbfounded while he does basically the parallel bars off a couple of pipes for about 10 minutes just to really hammer home the point. And then it's never mentioned again. And you get to the climax then where all of a sudden there's no notion that anyone in this film has any martial arts training whatsoever, least of all replicant. And then his evil, uh, the, the original guy is evil Van Damme, whatever the hell his name is, starts basically trying to spin kick him at the end and he keeps matching his moves and blocking his moves move for move. He's like, I can read your mind. Yes. <laughs> Understanding, uh, I'll buy the premise that y- y- you are telepathically linked. That doesn't explain how you're all of a sudden able to execute the martial yeah. arts required. <laughs> Am I thinking about this too hard? <laughs> Are you thinking about it? Yes. <laughs> then you're thinking about it too hard. Yes. Um, and it, more importantly, though, Craig, you're right about the the acting. Um, and this film doesn't deserve it. And what I'm, the key thing about these films are covering is is that the worst thing about any of them isn't Van Damme. Yeah. Van Damme's not the problem in any of them. I know. And I kind of appreciate that he's trying. Yeah. Because that the whole idea of him being this kind of simple childlike character you could do that so much worse yeah it could just look absolutely comical and ridiculous yeah. and he's he's not the worst i've seen that type of thing being done in movies i know not not by a long chalk yeah. and like honestly the only time i think it's it's really difficult to buy it's just when the wardrobe department have made him look like he's dressed like a wee boy with a baseball cap and stuff mm. like something something about the clothing there just made it seem dafter mm. but yeah it's van damme's not the problem <laughs> um the, the film is and the film is stupid yes. <laughs> um and yeah i would to kind of see the the nonsense sci-fi and stuff in it and if everything around it was better you, you don't care about that yeah it's like okay right this is your daft idea psychic magic genetic memory clone man okay right but I, I struggle to believe that when I don't believe any of the motivations of any of the characters. Like, why is this woman with Michael Ruger? Why would she not just be getting her son away from him immediately? And, <laughs> <laughs> the biggest danger in this film is Michael Ruger and not the serial killer. And why are we going to all the bother of having the setting up this whole genetic memory thing and having a replicate and all that thing? And all it really boils down to is him remembering a triangle and a clock. And apparently mm-hmm. that's good enough to set in motion all the rest of the events at some point. And, uh, yeah, trying a clock drawn like a three-year-old yeah, or something. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah and it's like none of the characters make sense. So like, look at his mother, who's like finds him in the bathroom struggling with um, half-naked Van Damme, and and she sees him handcuff him to the pipe that he apparently has in the bathroom for the purpose of handcuffing people to, because that appeared to serve <laughs> no structural purpose. But um, it's like it's not what you think. It's like well, either you think um, he's having a relationship with this guy in which case it's none of her business but if she thinks that homosexuality is wrong well she can die in all the fires or she it is what she thinks which is him beating up a man and then imprisoning her against his will and she's fine with that so you know <laughs> she can die in all the fires <laughs> yes <laughs> 
It's bizarre. The frustrating thing is this is a this is a this is a movie that has an idea that could have worked if almost everything about it was different. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Somewhere under here, there is a passable movie. Hmm. There is a passable B movie, certainly, but taint this one. Yeah, and again, where's the ringo lambness of it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's bizarre. It's, um, before we move on, I'm pointing this out. Now, there's a website called DVD Verdict, which I think I've heard of before. Now, I am not familiar with their reviewer, Mike Jackson, and I don't know whether he's simply never seen any other Van Damme films or he's a moron, but he said of Replicant, It's far from a great film, but Replicant is quite possibly the best film Van Damme has starred in since his debut in Bloodsport. Um, maybe he just doesn't like Van Damme. <laughs> maybe that's it. It's um, an interesting Bloods- take. Yeah. yeah, Bloodsport's a bad film, and Van Damme is particularly bad in it. And actually, it's notable that all films post Bloodsport, Van Damme is a notably better actor. Mm. <laughs> I'm not even that big of a Van Damme fan, and I can name you three films right off the top of my head that disprove your theory, Mike. Mm. There's a few reviews for this, and also in Hell as well, where they're saying it's well, it's one for John Claude Van Damme. Uh, film fans only, whereas that's exactly incorrect because it's they're not very Jean-Claude Van Damme at all. No, oh. he's not roundhouse kicking anybody oh. in the face or punching a single cobra. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear. Well, I've mentioned it like the boogeyman that it is, so shall we move on yeah. to NL? Let's, I'm intrigued because this I've, I hadn't had time to catch up with this one, so I've not seen it, so I am desperate to hear what you've got to say. I'm so jealous. <laughs> Russia has an independence day. It's the 12th of June and it was first observed in 1992. It celebrates the independence of Russia from the Soviet Union as if one wasn't a synecdoche for the other. I mention this because A, it's ridiculous. It'd be like the United Kingdom celebrating its independence from the British Empire. <laughs> and B, learning this was the only point during Ringo Lamb's In Hell that I wasn't bored, irritated, or both. <laughs> JCVD's Kyle LeBlanc is an American. It's so obvious. Jean Claude Van Damme's Kyle LeBlanc with his Belgian accent is an American. Uh, he is from uh, the Bayou. As we mentioned earlier, about not even trying to explain the accents. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> This film needed Wilford Brimley as a Cajun. <laughs> Most films do, to be honest. But uh, Yes, he's an American working in Russia. His wife is murdered by a Russian mafioso, who is acquitted due to his family connections and influence. And an enraged LeBlanc uh, then murders him outside of the courtroom after the trial. Despite the whole powerful and untouchable mafia thing, LeBlanc apparently need not fear any retribution, and indeed the whole murder the mafioso plot point is never mentioned, nor, I suspect, thought of again by the three screenwriters. Here seems an opportune moment to mention that this is the sole screenwriting credit of the three. Instead, he is sent to a Russian prison, one where a curiously large number of the Russian guards and Russian prisoners are played by Latino and Italian actors. Because, and I don't know if you've guessed this yet, in hell is a festering pile of crap. (laughs) In said prison, he makes fast enemies of Andre, another mafioso, and befriends Chris Moir's Billy, the subject of repeated rapings by Andre. A bunch of things then happen. Kyle is put into an extended stint in solitary confinement because he fought back when attacked. 
or didn't fight back or didn't fight back well enough I'm really not clear on that at all he's a troublemaker yeah. <laughs> then the fi- by not making trouble see yes. <laughs> then the film thinks it's Rocky for a brief moment and when he emerges Kyle is now a champion fighter defeating and killing all and sundry in the prison's regular fights until that is the ghost of his dead wife appears to him who may or may not also be a possibly magical moth (laughs) because the film definitely thinks it's the Lord of the Rings at one point and I kept expecting Van Damme to be rescued from his cell by a giant eagle (laughs) said ghost telling him that he's lost himself, whatever that means LeBlanc now refuses to fight and inexplicably the corrupt prison authorities who run the face decide that they can't kill him because it will make him a martyr despite the entire population clearly being certain to not to give a single <laughs> since they're all murderers and mafiosi except Billy who is dead and definitely had a character <laughs> Kyle will of course fight again but as part of an escape plan. But before that, there's also an appearance by Chunk from the Goonies' Russian cousin. Because why the hell not? And just to complete the misery, the whole thing is narrated, for no apparent reason, by Kyle's cellmate, who fancies himself a poet and philosopher, despite being a murderous psychopath who is offed several cellmates simply because they talked too much. It is unrelentingly pish a sad (laughs) legacy indeed for Lamb's US sojourn of which this was the last film with the director next working on the considerably more successful Triangle along with Choi Hawk and Johnny Toe if In Hell has a redeeming feature then it's that it manages to maintain this episode's unexpected running theme of Jean-Claude Van Damme biting people during fights (laughs) (laughs) I really am of course scraping the bottom of the barrel here but as I now remember that this particular chompy section led to the one time I laughed during this, thanks to Van Damme's ludicrous post-prandial scream, then it was probably worth getting down on in there. Not that anything else was, alas. <laughs> Avoid. Yeah, um, I, I had no idea what to expect from Inhale at all. I hadn't even heard the plot synopsis of it, other than it's a Ringo Lamb film. Okay. Um, I wasn't expecting the Shawshank Redemption written by a sadist and with Morgan Freeman replaced by a linebacker who's also a psychopath. Um, it's just stupid. <laughs> what, what was the point of this? It's, it's very dark. Um, I'll give it that. If they wanted to make a very dark film, well done they've done it it's unrelentingly grim and miserable um, and no fun whatsoever yet at the same time doesn't teach us anything about the human condition or anything at all or doesn't appear to actually feature humans in any great depth Uh, lots of baffling things that are picked up and dropped almost immediately like um, it's uh, I got the impression that Andre was supposed to be the brother of the guy that um, Jean-Claude Van Damme killed in the first place because they whistled the same. Um, I it, didn't get that. I assumed it just it triggered him because he because it's a thing people would do, like that mm. kind of blowing a kiss at someone like that. So I assumed he just got triggered because otherwise, why didn't he just try to kill him because he killed his brother? Like the, the whole fact they killed a yeah. protected guy was just dropped immediately. And then then he kind of does later. It's just. It's just a bunch of stuff that happened and exactly. didn't make any particular sense and was not in any way compelling or interesting while watching it. Um, again, as we said in the last one, it is 
very much not the fault of Jean-Claude Van Damme, who's trying his best, damn it. But his character just doesn't make any sense as written. So he he can try all he likes. Um, but apart from the few sort of brutal fight scenes, which um, he can obviously do well enough because he's Jean-Claude Van Damme, uh, but they're not in service of anything in particular. And after you get past that, that section and he's trying to somehow martyr himself by not fighting uh, which prompts everyone else to revolt and all the world's ills to be healed by some nature that happens off screen um uh, yeah it, it just doesn't make a lot of sense and this is not very good the russian chunk from the goonies is brought in to fight him and in the end it doesn't kill him because he recognizes the sound of someone banging on a wall yes that's the level we're dealing with here <laughs> it's tremendously stupid yes. um there's that like post like that just for the credits thing of like mm. the film the prison was shut down three months later so I feel like that had been the point of the film yeah uh-huh. what I think it's very generous in assuming that the film has a point um, it is merely a thing that happened and uh, yeah uh, I suppose if you're thinking of it from Jean-Claude Van Damme's perspective here's an opportunity to a very different style of film than you would typically associate with Jean-Claude Van Damme um, certainly not the way a lot of it's themed and the way a lot of it uh, the opportunities for some scenes to show emotion is, is given to him but unfortunately it's just absolutely cat-candidly handled um, it is just no good whatsoever Again, it's it's almost strange enough that I can't bring myself to hate it, but it, it's certainly not going to recommend anyone watch it. It's it's just very boring, which is perhaps the, the major point. It is so bleak uh, in all of its outlook that it kind of comes across almost as a parody of itself. Um, it's it's no good. <laughs> well, I wish I felt that. This is the shortest film of the three, and it felt like it was four hours long. Yeah. I, I just it just seemed to go on because nothing's happening. I don't care about anyone, nothing interesting was happening. It was all just tremendously stupid. It was such a weird, weird film. Yes. Unless I've completely misunderstood it, and again, it's possible, but given I'm considerably um smarter and more intuitive than anybody involved in making this film, I doubt it. <laughs> um they they unearthed some old landmines and more than one, but that seems to have been a part of a um, prearranged escape plot. What? Because I thought like the they've got these people out building a railroad because I don't know if somebody watched the bridge in the River Kwai I guess at some point, <laughs> uh, and even though like you only see them working on the same bit day after day. But suddenly they uncover a landmine from, I don't know, a, a war at some point perhaps, and it explodes on a, a truck, explodes on a, actually a different landmine, and the two people run away, and I thought, oh, right, they're just, it's opportune. But then the scene directly afterwards suggests that no, somehow that was a setup. <laughs> if prisoners could get landmines, I'm thinking they could find a better way to escape. Just a thought. <laughs> Yeah, no, it's it, it's so stupid, but one thing it's boring. It's so boring. Yeah, um, very much zero for three tonight. <laughs> 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 
if anything, think of tonight's podcast as being a cautionary tale. Uh, simply avoid all three of them would be my recommendation. <laughs> yes, that's, like, that's what you do. And, um, be careful what you wish for, because we're looking, we're like Sean Con Van Damme, and well, let's just keep watching this because it, it's kind of fun and easy, and maybe we'll get another double team. Mm. No. Like, <laughs> no. 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 Oh, no. Double team's very much its own thing, man. Yes. Double team's, I don't even think that's technically a movie. <laughs> uh, again, Double Team is one of the best, worst things I've ever seen. It's fascinating. <laughs> and these are just really, really bad films. And I don't even think Dennis Rodman in um, an ancient Fiat Cinquecento <laughs> would save this film. This, even if somehow that was also in the middle of this prison. This is how bad it's got for this podcast. We're wishing we had a film with Dennis Rodman in it. <laughs> Um, yeah, I take Rob Schneider because at least he has a character. That'll wrap us up for tonight. Unless you have anything else you want to say about these three wastes of space. No, good. Uh-huh. <laughs> if you have anything you'd like to talk to us about, then please do um, get in touch with us on Twitter at FuzzonFilm, Facebook.com slash FuzzonFilm, or the emails at podcast at FuzzonFilm.com. But until such time as we meet again, I shall bid you adieu, and I'm sure that my compadres will do so too. Take care of yourself. Hasta luego. Thank you.